0: And the Lights Go On Again Chapter 10
1: It was snowing. Hank tipped his head back, staring up into the endless blue, and watched tiny flecks of white swirl down from the sky until one of them landed on his eyelashes, and he had to blink it away. The last time he'd been outside, it had still been fall, the leaves just starting to turn. The world had been a riot of reds and yellows, browns and golds, a sharp contrast to the bluish overcast everything had now. "'If there's any trouble,' Steve was saying, "'I want you both to get yourselves out of the line of fire and run for it.' He held the two paramedics' eyes for a long moment to be sure they'd understood him, then added, "'You too, Hank.' Hank started to protest." He was an Avenger, which meant he'd spent half his adult life in mortal peril of some kind or another. But Jan cut him off. He's right, Blue Eyes. You're too valuable to risk losing. No Goliath stuff, okay? Just run for it, or shrink down and hide. He was too valuable to risk, but somehow Steve, who was running the entire resistance, wasn't. Hank felt his face heat. The paramedics were staring at him, he was sure. They probably thought he was a sorry excuse for a superhero, getting ordered to run from a fight and not use his powers. He'd had to argue extensively just for the right to come along on this little field trip, insisting that there were chemical supplies he needed that he had to pick out himself. In the end, though, Hank was pretty sure Steve had only agreed to let him come to make him stop whining. After all... Spider-Man was a chemistry major, and would have been perfectly capable of fetching whatever supplies Hank needed. Whining was selfish, especially since Tony probably hadn't even been above ground for three months, but he didn't actually care. Even though he was only tagging along on a supply run to a drugstore, rather than actually participating in a mission, at least he was outside, walking around, doing something. He had been poring over the data from the Argonian autopsy non-stop for the past three days, and he knew that he was missing things. He needed a break, to get out of the lab and burn off some energy so he could concentrate again. The sky was a strange purplish-gray, even more leaden than it normally looked when it snowed, and the city around them was dark, despite the fact that it was just afternoon. No cars moved in the streets, no streetlights were lit. "'and only a handful of buildings seemed to have lights on. "'The few people they passed hurried by, heads down, not looking at them. "'They passed an Argonian and two humans in warrior blacks "'keeping watch in East 51st Street, in front of St. Patrick's Cathedral, "'and Hank ducked his head, pulling his collar up "'and the fleece hat that had once been Vance's down, "'resisting the urge to make himself smaller literally as well as metaphorically.' "'None of the guards so much as glanced their way. Five humans in street clothes seemed to pass beneath their radar, "'at least here, where there were no major strategic targets to protect. "'Steve's efforts as part of the resistance had been in costume, as had Jan's. "'In normal clothing, especially in scarves, hats, and heavy winter coats, "'they blended right in, as did Hank and the two civilians. "'It didn't particularly bother Hank that he didn't know their names.' There were so many people in the Waldorf Astoria these days that it was impossible to keep track of things like that. He was pretty sure these two, a young white guy and a short pretty black woman, had been among the emergency personnel who had joined up after the attack on Penn Station, when word of the resistance had started to spread. They actually had a handful of people with medical training now, including one doctor who'd been a Navy reservist, and therefore not safe staying in the hospital cancer ward where he'd worked. "'What they didn't have were adequate medical supplies. "'The hotel's own stock of first aid items had run out quickly. "'And while medicine wasn't as in demand as food, "'pharmacies all over the city were running low on cold medication, "'band-aids, and other commonly used medical goods. "'And since medicine wasn't among the items "'the Argonians were shipping in through the shield, "'they couldn't steal it. "'Of course, without ration coupons, "'they couldn't buy it above board, either.' Luckily, there were two store owners within walking distance who were willing to do business with them under the counter. One of them had been the victim of a robbery attempt a few years ago, when two teenagers hoping to steal prescription drugs had held him at knife point and then been stopped by Daredevil. The other was the wife of a man who'd been rescued from a ferry explosion by the Fantastic Four. Technically, the ferry had only exploded because a supervillain who'd been trying to kill Reed Richards had attacked it— But, thankfully, she was willing to overlook that. That didn't solve the issue of adequate medical equipment. As it was, several civilian refugees had had to be taken to city hospitals because they had medical conditions requiring treatment that no one at the hotel could provide, like kidney dialysis or 24-hour monitored care. But at least it meant they didn't have to revert to pre-20th century conditions and start cleaning wounds with alcohol from the Peacock Alley bar and cutting up sheets to make bandages. The pharmacy itself felt as deserted as the streets. There was a man behind the counter, but other than that, the store was empty. The shelves themselves were barren-looking, at least half the merchandise that would normally have been stocked just gone. And there was something else strange about them, too, though Hank couldn't quite pin it down. Luckily, most of what he needed was more esoteric than bandages and shampoo, so he was able to find almost all of them. "'Irritatingly, all the nail polish remover brands the store stocked were non-acetone, "'which meant the acetone peroxide was off the menu as an explosive base, "'and he was going to be stuck synthesizing nitroglycerin from battery acid, aquafortis, and glycerol. "'Life would be so much easier if the cosmetics industry was still stuck in the 1970s, "'and if the Argonians hadn't gotten wise to the more common earth methods of producing homemade explosives "'and shut all the hardware stores down.' At least the liquor stores were still open, and cheap vodka still worked as the base for a Molotov cocktail. Hank was staring at the depleted stock of cleaning supplies, trying to decide which brands of bleach and window cleaner contained the highest concentrations of chlorine and ammonia, when Steve's voice sounded directly in his ear. No, Hank, under no circumstances whatsoever are we using tactics like that. Hank jumped his hand going automatically to the coat pocket where he'd hidden the handgun Steve had given him, just in case. Then he relaxed and turned around, his face burning. When had he gotten so jumpy? And how could Steve think he would actually contemplate making chlorine gas in the Waldorf Astoria's basement? That's not what I need them for, he protested, slightly stung at the injustice of the assumption. I'd never try making something like that when I'm working without a fume hood. Steve stared at him for a moment. Hank, you're not going to not do it because it's dangerous. You're not going to do it because it's against the Geneva Convention. Given how difficult it was to control the dissemination of gases once you'd released them into the atmosphere, it would have been a stupid tactic anyway, at least with the limited tools they had at their disposal. Still... I don't think the aliens have heard of the Geneva Convention, he pointed out. "'We've heard of it.' Steve's voice was level, calm, and completely uncompromising. "'I need bleach as a disinfectant, and ammonia to make nitric acid, "'and I am under no circumstances going to mix them.' Hank knew he sounded defensive, but he didn't really care. "'Why did people keep assuming he was a mad scientist "'with no concept of right and wrong, "'or of basic laboratory safety measures?' Even his friends didn't have any faith in his ability to use science responsibly. Tony suggested it, too, Steve said, after a moment, smiling a little apologetically. I told him the same thing. I know, Hank said. "'He'd seen the letter where Tony brought up the idea "'of flooding the lower levels of Grand Central Station "'with poison gas to take out the Argonian nerve center, "'only to shoot it down in favor of suggesting "'that a sufficiently powerful and expertly set explosion "'in the converter chamber would bring one of the walls down, "'flood the chamber with water, and cave the roof in, "'thereby destroying the power source for the Argonian's shield. "'He hadn't mentioned the fact "'that all the scientists and guards down there, "'including Clint and Tony himself would be killed in the process. Steve had been less than fond of that idea, as well. Jan appeared around the end of the aisle, a shopping basket on one arm. Joe and Simone say that they have all the supplies we need. Well, all we could find, anyway. Steve nodded. Okay, time to go. We can send a second team to the other pharmacy tomorrow. Let's not push our luck by visiting two in one day. He didn't mention that the Argonians were probably keeping an eye on hospitals and other sources of medical supplies these days. He didn't have to. Johnny Storm was currently flat on his back in their hotel suite's largest bedroom, instead of in the hospital room where he belonged, precisely because the hospitals were being watched. He'd been on fire when an Argonian sword had sliced his entire left thigh open, which meant the blade had been red-hot— Otherwise, he would have bled out in Ben Grimm's arms while the thing carried him home. Hank grabbed the two cleaning products he decided on, making sure to get several bottles of each. There was no knowing when he'd have a chance to get his hands on more. "'I've got everything, too,' he announced. Jan gave his shopping basket a significant look. "'You are not making chlorine gas. Or hydrazine.' "'No,' he agreed, rolling his eyes.' Cap and I already discussed it, and I'd just like to point out that you two are the ones who thought of chemical warfare as soon as you walked down this aisle, not me. Also, have I mentioned the fact that you know you can make more than one volatile chemical by mixing ammonia and bleach is kind of sexy? Jan winked at him. I know all kinds of things to do in a chemistry lab, blue eyes. Steve cleared his throat. right, Hank said, buying things now. People in the city took only cash and barter now. Credit cards had been useless since the power had first gone out, and everyone had stopped taking checks after the first month. Their baskets of supplies cost them nearly $500 of Tony's money, more than twice what it would have before the shield had gone up, and Hank strongly suspected that the clerk was giving them a discount. Jan handed the cash over without complaint. Thank you, the woman behind the register said very quietly, for what you people are doing. I used to read the fashion magazines during slow shifts, she added. I've always liked your work, Miss Van Dyne, on the runway or off. Hank was caught off guard by a sudden surge of pride. The store clerk didn't seem to recognize Steve, but she knew who Jan was, That's when one of the front windows was smashed open, and a half-dozen Argonians, plus the two human guards from St. Patrick's, came pouring in. Hank only barely stopped himself from changing size, remembering at the last second to grab for the gun in his coat pocket instead. It caught on the fabric, and he yanked at it futilely for what felt like an eternity, but was probably less than a second, and then it was free. The clerk had thrown herself to the floor behind the counter, out of the line of fire, and Hank spared a moment to be grateful at least they weren't going to have to worry about hysterical bystanders getting in the way. Then he was the one throwing himself flat, as one of the human guards slashed at him with a sword. From the corner of his eye, he caught the flash of Jan's biochemical stingers, but he didn't dare turn to look. He had enough to do trying to keep himself in one piece. He kicked the guard's feet out from under him... "'missing the extra reach he normally had in fights desperately, "'and rose to one knee, bringing the gun to bear on the second guard. "'Then he froze. "'The man was bearing down on him, "'looking massive beyond what ought to have been possible. "'He had to be taller than Steve, and possibly wider, too, "'and Hank had never truly realized what a psychological advantage "'being the biggest person in a fight was before, "'and Hank could not move, couldn't make himself pull the trigger.' "'The man about to slice him in half wasn't a robot, or an alien, or a monster. "'He was a human being. "'An ordinary person, not a crazy-mass murderer in a costume "'who wanted to wipe out a city block or rule the world. "'They didn't kill people. "'They were supposed to be the good guys. "'There was a loud crack of a gunshot, "'and both Hank and the guard turned to see the female paramedic "'standing squarely in the middle of the aisles.' "'holding her gun in a two-handed shooting stance "'obviously copied from television. "'Her bullet had gone wide. "'One of the Argonians turned as well, "'raising its plasma gun. "'Hank shot it. "'The gun jerked violently in his hand, "'not at all like an energy weapon, "'and the bullet hit the Argonian in the shoulder "'instead of in the center of his chest. "'Steve had warned him there would be a recoil, "'but he hadn't expected it. "'The guard's sword was swinging down towards his face.' Hank threw himself sideways, firing again, and then the guard was on the floor, writhing and making choking sounds, and Hank was on his feet again. He glanced around, heart-hammering so hard he could barely breathe, to find that the fight was already over. One of the Argonians was still standing, but it—no, there was no sign of an organic tail barb, so it was a male. He was clawing at his eyes with both hands— the fur on his face singed black by Jan's stinger blasts. The one Hank had shot was on her knees, head bowed, clutching at her bleeding shoulder, a snarl on her face. All of the others, humans included, were on the ground, unconscious or dead. One of the Argonians had a pair of bullet wounds in its chest, blood staining its black uniform even darker. The female paramedic hadn't missed the second time she'd fired a gun. Or the third. "'Someone grab the clerk,' Steve ordered. "'We need to run. Escape Plan C.' That meant splitting up and finding their own ways back to the hotel. It put each of them in more individual danger, but would make them harder to track. The male paramedic had the store clerk by the arm now, and they were both running out the door. Amazingly, he hadn't dropped his bag full of newly purchased medical supplies. It swung from his other hand as they ran.' Hank shoved the gun back into his coat pocket—leaving it behind was out of the question—and grabbed his own bags of chemical supplies, shamed by the paramedic's example. Then he ran, too. It felt wrong, running away instead of staying together as a team, like he was abandoning Jan and Steve. But when Steve used that particular tone of voice, you did what he said. I shot him. The thought ran through his head as he ran, ducking down side streets and under abandoned scaffolds to stay out of sight. He was a real person, and I shot him. Except he almost hadn't. He'd frozen, and someone with steadier nerves had had to come to his rescue. Someone who wasn't even a superhero, wasn't even a policeman. She'd probably never been in a real fight before, but she had reacted faster than he had. Not only was he not doing a superhero's job anymore, he could barely do a normal person's job. No wonder Jan and Steve wanted him to stay in the lab. The human
2: laborers made a great deal of noise as they worked. Not through carelessness, but because it was impossible to dismantle some of the larger pieces of equipment in silence. Even larger, stronger Argonian warriors would have been hard-pressed to do such a job quietly were such labor not beneath them. Isamud bent over yet another of the seemingly endless sheets of technical drawings that had become his life these days, did his best to ignore them, but even the intrinsic interest of the task at hand couldn't distract him from the significance of the flurry of activity around him. The situation in the nuclear research area had finally become too dire for even Arch-Captain Mamatu to ignore any longer. Four of the human physicists had died, and nearly all of those who remained were ill, save for one or two of the abnormal super-powered humans, whose unusual physiology appeared to protect them from the effects of radiation. Two of the human guards stationed there had died as well, and last Aukknight, an Argonian Meconikos had finally succumbed, her superior constitution not protecting her from the prolonged exposure. If Isamud had not already been grateful that he was not one of the mechonicos, whose duty it was to supervise the physicists, recent events would have sufficed to make him so. The Archon herself had ordered the removal of the more potentially dangerous scientific projects involving humans from Grand Central Station, directing the creation of two new research locations, one for physics, located on a small island that had previously been home to a human prison and therefore already had high levels of security, and places to house the remaining human physicists, and one for the scientists and engineers assigned to work on weapons production in an abandoned human subway station where they could handle potentially volatile compounds and devices away from the main command center's all-important power core. A human laborer near him dropped a section of metal sheeting, its collision with the cement floor creating a ringing clang that raised the fur on the back of Isamud's neck. His head snapped up, ears erect and quivering, and felt utterly foolish when he realized that it was only a clumsy accident. Not an attack by rebels, of course not. No attacker could ever penetrate here, so far beneath the city. Except they had back on Argon. Men, women, and children had died in the tunnels there, even on the shores of Alulum's Well, the center of the world, the best defended spot in half a galaxy. "'but that had not been humans. "'Humans could not see in the dark. "'Humans did not breed so quickly.' "'Isamud sighed, letting his ears sag downward, "'and resumed the painstaking task of redrawing the technical plans "'of a portion of a ship's engine "'to conform with the data the human scientists had given him. "'His own duties,' he reflected, "'were difficult enough, "'and being moved to another location would only make them harder.' as machinery and facilities had to be moved and set up all over again. Reconstructing a new ship based on the pattern of the old ones was proving a more difficult task than he had first predicted. Tony Stark and several of the other human scientists had proven skillful at identifying the metals used in the alloys that were needed to construct the engines and hull but one of the metal ores needed to replicate the whole alloy, a metal common on Argon, was rare and difficult to find on Earth. And then there were the blueprints, which were still being drawn up and corrected. After last month's humiliating structural failure of the first hull, which had set production back considerably, Isamud was double-checking everything. He didn't blame Tony Stark for the error that had led to the collapse, Tony had mentioned many times that his analysis of the technical drawings Isamud had made might not be completely accurate, apologizing repeatedly for his inferior eyesight and inability to read Argonian, and the mistakes that might result from it. It had been Isamud's fault entirely. His drawings of the ship's superstructure had been flawed, obviously, and blaming Tony for failing to notice his own mistakes was... It was the kind of thing Arch-Captain Mamatu did to the Mechonikos all the time. Thinking of a warrior as a bad leader was a bit of near-treason that made him feel obscurely guilty, but it was true, and blaming subordinates for one's own errors was forfeiting one's own honor by taking the easy way out. Issamu curled the edge of his lip at the drawing, flicking one ear back. The angle of the air intake valve was slightly off. He could tell that much by looking at it, but what ought the proper angle to be? The mathematical calculations involved were more complex than those he generally performed. He would, he decided, not ask Tony Stark or any of the other scientists what the problem was and how to fix it. He would ask him to show him how to do mathematical equations necessary to calculate the proper volume of air and the best valve configuration to achieve it. Tony would, after all, be leaving soon, and Isamud would still have to solve problems like this in his absence. Foolish and unworthy as emotional attachments to lesser species were, Isamud was going to miss Tony Stark. It had been pleasant having someone to discuss scientific concepts with. He had learned a great deal from Tony, something which he had not expected at the outset. He was, after all only human but he was a human who possessed a great deal of useful scientific knowledge even if language barriers and other factors occasionally prevented the argonian empire from making full and proper use of said knowledge and that knowledge made him useful valuable other humans respected him or had before he had sworn his allegiance to argon and made them his enemies Before the Argonians had arrived, he had been a person of great wealth and power, a maker of weapons so highly valued that his name had been known throughout the world. No one knew the name of the Mechonikos who had designed the first plasma gun anymore. If Isamud were responsible for rediscovering the secrets of nuclear fusion, if he personally oversaw the building of the first new power core in three lifetimes, his name and his contribution to the Empire would not be remembered. Only the results would be. Once, that had been enough for him, but now. If knowledge had value, whatever its source, if people who possess knowledge had value, it had been thus on Argon once, or the great ships, the plasma guns, the nuclear missiles, the power cores could never have been built. In the early days of the Empire, the most skilled mechanicos had been a priesthood of sorts, respected and revered. Now the Empire had fallen, and nothing was the way it had been anymore. Even the sunlight was the wrong color here. It was too bright, searing the eyes and making it difficult to see. Strange that he should feel so at home here, then. He wished it could have been so on Argonne that he could have found respect in others to share his love, deciphering the way things worked there. But on Argonne, he would never have given language lessons to a warrior, would never, ever have spoken directly to the Archon. Isamud reversed the human writing stylus and used the small pad of rubber at its tip to erase the air intake valve from the drawing. It irritated him to see it there when he knew it was an error, but hadn't yet figured out why. Better to leave the spot blank, and to complete the design properly later. Human paper was much flimsier and softer than real paper, and he had to take great care when brushing the scraps of rubber and paper fibers left by the eraser away, lest his claws catch on the material and tear it. This would all be so much easier if the drafting programs he knew the humans' computers had were not utterly indecipherable, requiring, as they did, complete fluency in at least one of the many forms of human writing. Humans were a disorganized, muddled species, many of them not sure what they were or where their place was. Even some of the most skillful of human scientists they had captured or enlisted seemed to doubt their roles. Many of them had been imprisoned for terrible crimes, the product of attempting to be both Mechonikos and warrior, an impossible conflict of goals that had driven them mad. And even with this, they had accomplished great things. How much more could Argonians accomplish, then, if Mechonikos were listened to? If the most knowledgeable of them could speak, not on a level with an Imperator or Archcaptain, but at least on one above that of the lowest-ranking soldier. If they worked with warriors instead of serving them. When he next spoke to her for next night's language lesson, he would ask Sub-Captain Kamani to put forward Tony's name for elevation from human slave to the lowest rank of Meconikos. It was a great honor, rarely given to non-Argonians, for even being accorded a position in the lowest levels of Argonian society was a gift most other species were rarely worthy of. It was the best way he could think of to thank Tony for opening his eyes. There was nothing more to be done on this project for now, Isamud decided, studying the thin black and gray lines of the drawing one final time. It was time to hand it off to one of the human engineers before he was deprived of their assistance, and if Archcaptain Mamatou or her more loyal subordinates were not around, to request that math lesson. Argonian warriors were the most fearsome in two galaxies. Surely Argonian Mechonikos could be equally unsurpassed given the proper chance. They too were children of Alulam, and they, or at least their ancestors, had created the means to travel between stars to replicate the inner workings of the stars themselves and use them for the glory of Argon. If they could do so once more, then Argonians would never have to suffer defeat and exile again. They could return home in triumph, to build the empire anew, perhaps perhaps even greater than before. And the men and women who built that new empire's ships, forged its swords, designed its engines and missiles, Their names would be remembered, as the names of those who died to hold a tunnel against an invading host were.
3: Johnny is doing better. Dr. Ayers says that with luck, he'll be able to walk without a limp. Spider-Man has gotten him involved in working on the Daily Bugle's radio shows while he heals, so he won't drive the rest of us crazy because he's bored. I never thought I'd say this, but he might be almost as bad as you when it comes to convalescing. He nearly died, Tony. Other men and women helping us have. The Argonians arrested the owner and all the employees, save one of a pharmacy that they discovered was selling us medical supplies, and had the owner executed. We still don't know where they got the intelligence. They caught us red-handed right there in the store. It was a bloodbath. We had to shoot our way out, which means more dead Argonians and now that they've started killing people in retaliation for Argonian casualties, where will it end? The fighting is only going to get more brutal, because there's no way to counter guerrilla warfare that's not brutal. I knew that when we started this, but I'm not sure that everyone else did, and at the end of the day, the tactics we use are my responsibility, because I'm in charge. The dead are on my conscience including the humans who are fighting on the Argonian side. And I don't have the luxury of acting unsure. Too many people are looking to me for me to visibly question our actions, for me to waver. If we aren't willing to fight with the only tools we have, we'll never be free again. But is freedom really freedom if you win it by becoming as terrible as your enemy? I just wish that there was someone I could talk to about this. "'someone I didn't have to be strong for. "'Since Sam left, there has been no one. "'Carol is dealing with her own problems, and Hank... "'Hank can calmly contemplating poisoning dozens "'or hundreds of people with chemical weapons so vicious "'no one in the civilized world has used them since the Great War, "'but he hasn't come out of his labs since the firefight at the pharmacy. "'I can't burden Jan with this, or Wanda. "'They have too many responsibilities and worries of their own. "'I wish you were here, Tony.' I wish I could actually talk to you just to hear your voice. You always make me think, make me see the practical side of things, not just the ideological one. And I need that right now more than ever. I need someone to argue with about right and wrong, so I can remember how important doing the right thing is. I think I've already shot my ability to bear my soul to Carol to hell anyway. She and Wanda are... "'Frankly, I'm not sure what's going on there, but it culminated in Wanda kissing Carol and Carol leaving her behind on the battlefield. "'It's been almost a month, and I still don't think they're talking to each other. "'I may have taken things a little personally when I debriefed Carol. "'She insisted she didn't know anyone who was like that and that it was wrong, "'and I effectively told her that I was attracted to men as well as women, then gave her a lecture on gay rights.' With everything that's going on, I feel stupid even mentioning that, but you're my best friend, and who else can I talk to? Maybe I'm just moping because it's nearly Christmas, and the tactical situation hasn't improved. I'd give nearly everything to get word from Sam. I knew we might be losing all contact with him when we sent him out. But that doesn't make it easier any more than the fact that I know all the logical, practical reasons we can't pull you and Clint out of there makes letting you stay down in that hellhole any easier. People should be with their families on Christmas. Since we can't, I'm sending you a present instead. Well, sort of a present. When this is over, I'll draw you a proper one, one to keep, with everybody where they belong. Yours, Steve.
4: Tony turned the sheet of paper over, feeling numb. On the back of the sheet was a sketch of the Avengers in front of a Christmas tree. There were two open, empty spaces in the middle of the lineup, and little arrows had been drawn pointing to the gaps. Steve had written, ''Tony goes here, and Clint goes here,'' next to them. The empty space reserved for Tony was right next to Steve. Tony blinked, and the picture blurred out of focus. He closed his eyes, turning his face away and covering it with his free hand, struggling to regain his composure. He was going to have to destroy it. Steve's messages were too dangerous to keep. Destroy Steve's art. The first piece of home he'd seen in so long, he could barely remember what it was like not to live under armed guard in an underground cave anymore. What is it? Clint's voice was hoarse with concern. What does it say? Tony's lips twitched unwillingly. Clint probably thought somebody had died. After all, normal stable people didn't start tearing up over being wished Merry Christmas. He thrust the paper in Clint's general direction, not looking at him. Hey, it's a picture of the Avengers. Without us in it. God, Cap is such a sap. He sounded like he was smiling, concern gone. Then, after a long pause, Tony... You know we have to burn this. I know, Tony snapped, dropping his hand from his face and snatching the letter back from Clint's grasp. He grabbed the small welding torch off his workbench and turned it on with a sharp, jerky motion. Better to do it quickly, before he had to think about what he was doing. The letter was written on very thin paper, as usual, and it burned quickly, also as usual. Within moments, there was nothing left of it but a small pile of grey ash. Tony blinked, then blinked again. The smoke was making his eyes water. Clint, watching, said nothing. There, Tony announced, no more evidence. He turned away, suddenly feeling very naked under Clint's silent gaze, and poured himself a cup of coffee from the thermos Izumid had started leaving on his workbench in the morning. He couldn't muster the energy to feel guilty about the preferential treatment at the moment. The lukewarm coffee splashed unevenly into the cup, and he realized that his hands were shaking. He shifted his body slightly, shielding the cup from Clint's gaze, not wanting to answer whatever Clint might have to say if he noticed. Did Jan bring any salt? His voice sounded calm to his own ears, controlled. At least he could control something. Clint handed over a single, small, white paper packet— I hate it here, he said flatly, voice empty of inflection. Tony tore the salt packet open and poured the contents into his coffee cup, then drank half of it in one long swallow. It tasted strange, but it was better than licking salt off his hands like a drug addict. That's just weird, Clint observed. He smirked at Tony, though it was obvious his heart wasn't really in it. Better than looking like a junkie, Tony said deliberately snide, hoping that Clint would take the hint and leave him alone. Well, I guess you'd know, since that Mechanicos can apparently bribe you into doing his bidding with caffeine. Tony suppressed a flinch and stared into his disgusting, salty coffee. He was being ridiculous. Clint was just acting like a bastard. It came naturally to him. He didn't actually mean it. Connors and Gruenwald did along with most of the other non-supervillain scientists in the place, and some of the supervillains, too. They had every reason to do so, and Tony wasn't entirely certain that they were wrong anymore. Of course they believed the worst of him. When had he ever given them a reason not to? If he were honest with himself, their contempt for him was probably deserved. It wasn't as if he were trustworthy. After all, He'd been lying to them about Iron Man's identity for years. Or even a particularly good man. And now, he was actively collaborating with the enemy. Oh, he could tell himself that he needed to keep up his cover, or he'd be of no use as a spy. But he'd survived months in Afghanistan without giving in to the terrorists who'd held him. He'd withstood torture, then, to avoid letting his weapons fall into the wrong hands. This time, he'd built weapons of mass destruction... For his enemies willingly even if the end goal was to bring the argonians down with him they were still out there fighting with weapons he had built and repaired for them so at the end of the day grunwald was right about his being a collaborator just as he was right when he called tony irresponsible tony had been called a lot of things over the years irresponsible arrogant a slut a drunk a spoiled rich boy a war profiteer. The fact that the people making the criticisms hadn't liked him didn't make their words any less accurate. Surely if he'd just been a little smarter, a little better prepared, he would have found a way to avoid having to surrender, found a better way to fight them. This way was going to cost too many other people their lives. I'm not the one wearing their uniform, Tony told Clint, tone as sarcastic and biting as he could make it. Just be grateful they've kept you on central command guard duty, according to that mechanicals. Sub Captain Kamani wants to transfer you to her command and deploy you in the city, suppressing resistance. Clint stiffened visibly, looking sick. She's not. Arch Captain Mamatu hates her. She'd never let anyone be transferred out of her command into Kamani's, even a human. She's seen you practicing with that sword. Tony nodded at the curved Argonian short sword at Clint's hips. Apparently, it impresses her. Luckily for you, protecting the infrastructure here is their first priority. Clint wasn't a fencer, but no one who'd been trained by Steve in hand-to-hand combat was going to disgrace themselves in a fight, no matter what the weapon. Well, my first priority is keeping an eye on you and keeping the lines of communication open with Jan. Clint was glaring at him now, "'arms folded like a shorter, slightly younger, significantly less intimidating version of Steve. "'Otherwise, what good are you as a spy? "'I'm doing a negligible amount of good here anyway.' "'Tony waved a hand at the closest workbench, "'which was covered in his latest project, "'subjecting metal alloys to stress tests "'to determine if they could be used in Argonian spaceship hulls. "'You'd be safer if you were somewhere else. "'Because of Tony,' the Argonians were significantly closer to regaining nuclear capacity. Because of him, they had functional missiles that could work in vacuum again, thanks at least in part to his work. They had the more damage of their spaceships almost completely repaired, and had begun building a new one, which would be complete in every way save for its power core, which they still couldn't duplicate, and never would if Tony had anything to do with it, in only a few months. All Tony had to show for his undercover efforts was some basic information on their weapons and shield that he had slipped out to Steve. A half-finished pair of jury-rigged repulsor gauntlets, currently disassembled and hidden around his work area. He had scavenged the parts from various projects Izzymund had given him. One tiny component at a time, and he still lacked several vital parts to make them fully functional. If he had to, if Steve's hope that Sam could return with reinforcements to attack the Argonians from without came to nothing... If things got so desperate that the Resistance's only chance of survival was to bring the shield down and do it immediately, Tony could. It would completely destroy Grand Central and kill everyone in it, including hundreds of innocent human prisoners. But once the gauntlets were done, he could do it. It was probably the one thing that would make everything he'd done for the Argonians, and the loss of his abilities in the Resistance effort, a worthwhile strategic trade-off. It was an order Steve was never going to give, but that didn't mean things wouldn't reach the point at which it was necessary. He was never going to leave the station again. Tony had made peace with that. With luck, he might be able to get Clint out, though. It would take work, but Clint had already worked a guard shift at service level, which meant leaving the station was possible for him. Leaving without orders to do so would mean that he couldn't return to the station without being executed for desertion or treason. "'But since the Argonian High Command "'would have collapsed into the city's depths at that point, "'it really wouldn't matter. "'Yeah, but I'm more useful here. "'Plus, Cap would kill me if I left you alone down here.' "'Clint offered Tony a bright, deliberately obnoxious smile. "'I know you gave me an order, Cap,' he went on, "'in a sing-song tone full of innocence and fake cheer. "'But Tony was being sarcastic at me. "'Tony rolled his eyes. "'Then he sighed and rubbed his forehead with one hand.' Trying to massage away the headache, he could feel gathering behind his eyes. Fine, he said, you win. He was too tired to keep the conversation going right now. He'd figure out a way to get Clint out of the line of fire later, when the gauntlets were done. He was always tired now, and his whole body ached, especially his ribs. They had never really healed from the beating he had taken when the Argonians had arrived. Or, if they had, the vitamin C deficiency had caught up with him, and begun sabotaging what months of recovery had done. "'So what did it say in the letter?' Clint asked. He was leaning one hip against the side of the workbench now, poking absently at the bits and pieces of metal strewn across it. "'I didn't get to read it before you overreacted and burned it.' Tony sighed. "'You're the one who told me to.' He reached over and removed a coil of wire from Clint's hands, before it could be bent out of shape. Without missing a beat, Clint picked up one of the pieces of disassembled repulsor gauntlet and started fiddling with that. I didn't mean now, he said. I meant after I got to read Cap's mail. He smirked faintly. Dear Tony, he went on, in the high-pitched voice he used when he was pretending to be someone else in order to mock them. I miss you so much. Please come back so we can sit around the mansion and braid each other's hair and talk about our feelings. His letters are nothing like that, Tony snapped. Yanking the repulsor port core from Clint's grasp, and deliberately setting it down out of his reach. "'Don't touch that,' he added in an undertone. "'It's part of a repulsor gauntlet.' Clint raised his eyebrows and held his hands up in an innocent gesture, but said nothing about Tony's little side project. "'Oh, come on, you know they are,' he returned, sticking to his subject. "'For a straight guy, he spends entirely too much time talking about people's feelings. "'I don't even have to read this one to know what it said.' Dear Tony, blah, blah, feelings, blah, blah, the aliens suck. The team is barely functional without Hawkeye to be awesome for us. I'm worried that everyone I'm in charge of will be blown up like Bucky. Hank is a psycho who wants to poison everyone. Don't get killed. The end. Love, Cap. The fact that, aside from the comments about Clint himself, it was a vaguely accurate summary of Steve's latest few letters did not make it funny. Shut up, Clint. Why don't you go guard something? Tony leaned forward his hands on the edge of his workbench, and glared at Clint across the clutter of works in progress, trying to silently will him to go away. Normally, he liked having Clint's company while he worked. It wasn't as if anyone else down here ever talked to him. Unless you counted Izumund. And it made the days go by a little less slowly. Right now, though... He needed time to absorb everything Steve had just told him. Time to mourn lost opportunities and the holiday he wasn't spending with the only family he ever had in peace. To think about what it meant that Steve had oh so casually slipped that mention of his sexuality into the letter, as if it were no big deal, Were something Tony already knew, what it meant that, in Steve's picture, he had left a place for Tony at his side. Unfortunately for Tony, Clint was apparently in one of those moods where all he wanted to do was pester somebody. "'Because this is more fun,' he said, not moving. Tony rubbed at his forehead again, then pinched the bridge of his nose. Forget vitamin deficiencies. Clint could induce migraines just fine without any help. "'Let me rephrase that. Why don't you go guard something before the Argonians start wondering why you've been hanging out here for an hour?' Clint made a dismissive gesture. "'The rhino talks to Dr. Schultz or whatever his name is all the time.' That's because he's some kind of supervillain. Clint frowned a little. What makes you think that? Because he talks to the Rhino? Willingly? Not to mention that he seemed to be on speaking terms with Connors and Octavius as well. Or at least as close to speaking terms as anyone ever got with Octavius. He seemed to be compensating for his lack of mobility by verbally eviscerating anyone who got too close to his workstation. Tony did his best to stay away from him, He got enough verbal abuse from the scientists who weren't career criminals. Clint nodded. I see your point. And you're right. If I hang out here too long, Izumund will show up and start quizzing us about warrior-scientist relations in human society. And I just have this disturbing suspicion, relations doesn't just mean warriors and scientists being buddies with each other. Until a few minutes ago, Tony had always assumed that Steve was basically heterosexual, and it had turned out to be about as true as any other unfounded assumption. In Clint's case, though, no amount of money could make Tony take a bet that Clint was anything but as straight as one of his arrows. Tony summoned up his best lascivious grin, gave Clint a slow once-over through his eyelashes. Flirting, oddly, took less energy than trying to have a real conversation. Possibly because it was something he could do by reflex. You mean the honeymoon is over already? Clint shuddered, making a face. Please don't remind me how long it's been since either of us has gotten laid. Some of us got. Tony began, intending to claim that he, unlike Clint, had gotten enough sex in the months prior to being captured, that a few months of celibacy wasn't a hardship. It wasn't actually true, but Clint didn't know that. He stopped mid-sentence as he remembered that the last time Clint had had sex, it had probably been with Bobby, Bobby, who Clint had watched die less than a year ago. He'd said her name once, while delirious from the Argonian's poison. Never mind. Clint stared at him, brows drawn together in confusion. Never mind what? When Tony didn't answer, Clint shook his head, heaved a deep sigh, indicating that he didn't know why he'd been bothered with someone as hopeless as Tony, and strode off. Tony heaved a sigh of his own, and resisted the urge to simply put his head down on his workbench and close his eyes. He wasn't sure if the continual exhaustion that dragged at him these days was due to incipient scurvy, the lack of sunlight, or just the situation in general. He had to be on guard all the time, making sure to never let his cover slip when an Argonian was watching, until, even in his sleep, he couldn't make himself relax. Even in his dreams, he was still stuck down here, except for the ones where his subconscious jumbled things up, and he was still in Afghanistan, creating the original prototype for the armor, and watching Yinsen die. Even in those dreams, his waking reality leaked in, the warlord who'd held him captive, became Amitou, or another Argonian, and he would kneel down, beside Yinsen's body, armor clanking, and find himself staring at Clint's bullet-ridden corpse and instead, or Jan's, or Pepper, or Happy's bodies, or once, Steve's. He hadn't mentioned that in any of the letters, and he never would. There were a lot of things he'd never mention. Steve was... Just the sight of his handwriting made being down here almost bearable. Tony had never told him that, hinted, but never come out and said that looking forward to Steve's next letter was the only thing that gave him a reason to get out of bed in the morning. Because if he did, he would have to explain why. And until now, that had seemed like a wasted endeavor that would just make Steve uncomfortable, and possibly cost Tony the best friend he had. His head still hurt, a dull ache that was steadily ratcheting up into an actual migraine. He hadn't gotten one of those since he healed up from the last round of concussions. The converter room's just this side of dim lighting was starting to hurt his eyes, and combined with the headache, it was disturbingly reminiscent of a hangover. Tony closed his eyes and slumped against his lab bench, rubbing at his temples with both hands, and tried not to wish for the alcohol that part of him was still convinced would make the pain go away. He heard the scuff of a shoe on concrete and groaned, "Clint, I told you to go away.' He snapped. I'm not your ex-Avenger buddy, Stark. Tony's eyes snapped open, and he looked up to see Schultz standing over him, looking down at him with folded arms and an irritated expression. Damn, he was slipping. He should have known it wasn't Clint. Clint wore boots. Tony suppressed the impulse to sigh and straightened up. Is there something I can help you with, Schultz? The other scientist had avoided Tony completely thus far not even bothering to offer his opinion on Tony's morals and ethics, or general lack thereof, as almost everyone else had. "'Yeah,' Schultz said, unfolding his arms and shifting his facial expression to something slightly friendlier, with what looked like actual effort. "'Everyone says you're some kind of genius, and since you built the Iron Man armor, I guess it's probably true.' Tony nodded warily. There was no real point in denying it. But he was fairly sure that Schultz was also a volunteer— rather than a captive. Not that there was much difference between the two at this point. Which meant that his motives were not to be trusted. There was a decent chance that he was spying on fellow scientists for the Argonians. Why else would he be asking questions about Iron Man? He should have known Tony Stark's open sponsorship of Iron Man and the Avengers would eventually come back to haunt him. If you had to build a vibrational dampener out of the materials available for use in this pit, how would you do it? If I... What? Tony blinked at him. His tense expectation of disaster derailed into confusion. You're working on pieces of engines for their in-atmosphere fighters. That doesn't have anything to do with vibrational dampeners. Let's call it a side project. Schultz leaned forward, lowering his breath. I'm pretty sure that... He nodded at Tony's workbench. It's part of one of Iron Man's repulsor ports. which, the last time I checked didn't have anything to do with spaceship hull alloys. His voice was very quiet, perfectly calm, but with an edge of menace that confirmed that, yes, he was in fact some kind of supervillain, if not anyone Tony had actually recognized. Some kind of supervillain who'd figured out that Tony was secretly building himself a pair of repulsor gauntlets. What do you want? Tony asked, as the bottom dropped out of his stomach. If Schultz told the Argonians... Tony wouldn't be the only one to suffer for it. Clint would be charged with treason right along with him. And they would see to it that it, he took hours to die. Damn it, he should have hidden the pieces of the gauntlets better. Should have been more careful. Now they are both going to die, and it would have all been for nothing. I want your help building a vibrational dampener. Schultz frowned, staring at him with the same What's the matter with you, weren't you listening? that several of Tony's exes had been particularly fond of i tell you the frequency of the vibrations, but that's... Let's call it privileged corporate information. Something about his voice was vaguely familiar. But that might just be because they'd both been stuck down here together for over three months. And Schultz's voice had become part of the background drone that Tony did his best to tune out while he was working. It didn't help that the other man was so utterly unremarkable. Average height, average build, mid-thirties, brown hair, brown eyes... Neither particularly attractive, nor particularly unattractive. No scars, no moles, no distinguishing marks. He could have been anyone, including one of Tony's less memorable ex-employees. Tony racked his brain anyway, and came up with an utterly frustrating nothing. If he knew who the man was, he'd know how to deal with him, how to manipulate him. As it was, the best thing he could think of to say was, Why? Why do you need one? Why aren't you turning me in? He wasn't sure himself which question he was really asking. Because I'm not going to tell the alien fox things about your little side project. Which means you owe me one. Tony blinked. Well, that was direct. Then again, Schultz's main source of human conversation over the past few months had been the rhino. Which probably left one out of practice at things like subtlety. And how do you know I'm not going to tell them about yours, whatever it is? He tried to match Schultz's quietly threatening tone, and... Judging by the way the other man's jaw tightened, succeeded. Because he used to fund the Avengers. People like that don't sell other humans out to the aliens. The flat statement was as much a challenge as an explanation. And Tony wondered if it wrinkled for the man to admit that anyone connected to the Avengers had any good qualities. Look, just a couple suggestions would help. He offered Tony a half-smile, adding, Come on. I wouldn't rat you out anyway. I owe you one for testing Alexei for radiation poisoning. Plus, if they have a reason to suspect one of us, they'll start taking a closer look at all of us. Tony found himself nodding. It was a good point. It served them all well to keep their heads down. Give me a few hours to think about it, and I'll see what I can come up with. It wasn't as if he had any choice. Schultz had him over a barrel, and they both knew it. "'You still haven't told me why you need it?' Schultz smirked nastily at him. "'You think your Avenger friends are the only ones who want the aliens gone?' "'The people who really run this city are losing business every day they're here. "'Who do you think's been supplying Captain America's resistance with guns?' "'He left while Tony was still trying to think of an adequate reply, "'Argonian-issue gray lab coat flapping behind him. "'So, the Kingpin had people down here as well. "'He shouldn't have been surprised, really.' The kingpin generally had people everywhere. Wonderful. Now he got to look over his shoulder twice as often, and tried to sleep with the knowledge that his cover would be blown the moment Wilson Fisk decided that Tony and Clint were more useful to him captured and dead. He had to complete the gauntlets before that happened, before Schultz sprung whatever piece of sabotage he was planning. Because chances were, he wasn't going to give Tony and Clint a heads up before he brought the wrath of the Imperator down on them all, at the Kingpin's behest. He had been stalling, Tony realized, working more slowly than he could have. He should have started working on the gauntlets earlier, much earlier. It ought to have been the first plan in his mind from the moment he realized he'd been put in the same chamber as the shield. he had known from the start he was in a position to take out the Argonians' power source and the best part of their defenses in a single blow— and had wasted time passing handfuls of mostly useless information to Steve. He didn't want to die. More than that, he didn't want to be responsible for the deaths of everyone imprisoned down here with him. He didn't want to die with the blood, suffering, and death of hundreds on his hands. He also didn't have a choice. Looked at objectively, the life of one man, or even several hundred men, was nothing compared at all to the fate of all humanity." Tony picked up the half-finished propulsor port, and started carefully winding another layer of wire around the main ring. It wouldn't be as solid as a ring of metal cast specifically for the task would be, but it only had to be fired a handful of times. It was ironic, really. He had said nothing to Steve about how he really felt about him, spent years trying to never let his feelings go beyond friendship, and now that he'd been forced to realize how much the other man truly meant to him, Now that he knew there was a chance Steve might be capable of someday returning his feelings after all, it was too late to do anything about it. He was never going to see Steve, or anyone else he loved, again.
0: Good evening, New York! Coming at you live from an undisclosed location in Manhattan, this is Daily Bugle Free Radio. I'm your new temporary celebrity host for the evening broadcast, Johnny Storm, better known to the ladies as the Human Torch. In a break from our usual procedure, we're going to be playing you some music in addition to reading you depressing news stories about aliens. But first, some news stories about aliens. Take it away, Ben Urich. <clears throat> Thank you, Johnny. The ongoing conflict between Argonian forces and the human resistance movement has escalated in the wake of the Argonian execution of Jacqueline Kurtzberg, a pharmacy owner whose drugstore was discovered to be selling supplies to members of the resistance. Two of Mrs. Kurtzberg's employees are still being detained by the Imperator's troops after being arrested earlier this week by Argonian security forces under the command of Sub-Captain Zarek. A wave of retaliatory attacks has spread across Manhattan and the Bronx similar to the outbreak of violence that followed the execution of New York City police officer Sumarek this fall, ranging from anti-Argonian slogans spray-painted on walls and bricks thrown at patrolling Argonian troops to the brutal execution of a human security guard working for the Imperator. Security forces under sub-captains Zarek and Kamani have suppressed the outbreaks with brutal force, leading to the deaths of over a dozen people from plasma burns. Stay tuned for more news at the half hour. Thank you, Ben. And I'd like to take a moment to let the, um, the families of Mrs. Kurtzberg and her employees know that we, I mean, the Fantastic Four and the Resistance, value and honor their bravery and sacrifice. I... I... Oh, I probably wouldn't still have two legs if she hadn't been willing to sell us medical supplies, so I'd like to, um... to thank her. And, uh, right, we were going to play music, weren't we? Okay, first up, courtesy of my iPod, is Let's Get It Started by the Black Eyed Peas. Just to make it clear for posterity, we don't actually have permission to play any of these, and no one is getting any royalties. So if anyone from the RIAA is listening, I know you guys aren't going to let a little thing like aliens taking over the world stop you from suing people, so you can send all your lawyers to the Baxter building. It's the one with the giant force field around it that's been under siege by the Argonians for four months.
5: What the hell? How do you get this? thing? that
0: button right there. What button? I don't know.
3: Oh, okay. It is starting. In here. The base keeps running running and 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 running
6: and in this context there's no disrespect So when I bust my around you break your neck We got five minutes for us to disconnect from all intellect and let the rhythm affect to
4: lose the inhibition Follow your intuition Free your inner soul and break away from tradition Cause when we be
0: Chapter eleven.
6: They're what? What do you mean they're moving you? Chan's voice was shrill and directly in his ear, but most of Clint's attention was taken up by the freezing wind that was turning his face numb and the bright blue violet sky overhead. It didn't even matter that the sky was tinted purple, it was still a broad expanse of clear sky. "'open and endless and dizzying after so long "'with nothing but the low concrete of tunnels. "'Even the vast arch of the main concourse's ceiling didn't compare. "'The night sky painted there was fake, flat, "'the stars unmoving and out of place. Clint, are you even listening?' Jan demanded. "'What do you mean they're moving you?' she repeated, "'swatting the side of his neck with one tiny hand to get his attention.' It tickled, sending tangles down the back of his neck and his spine. Sorry, Clint said automatically. It's just... He waved a hand vaguely upwards. There's sky. I haven't seen the sky in months. Hank was the same way. She sounded faintly amused now, though the stress and worry were still there. This is your first outdoor shift, isn't it? Clint nodded. Yeah, how'd you guess? Guarding the station's doors from the outside, considered an unpleasant ordeal by the Argonian guards, was a sign of trust and honor for human auxiliaries. He had never raided it before. Apparently, the newly made Archcaptain Kamani's request to have him transferred to her command had raised his estimation in arch-captain mamatu's beady black eyes if only because mamatu enjoyed having something the other officer wanted i think it's a bribe to try and make me like my commander better she's using me as a pawn in some kind of petty grudge war with another officer this is the same one who tried to kill you the skepticism was obvious in her voice and clint snorted "'Yeah, that would be her. I don't think she even remembers that. I'm not sure how well she can tell humans apart, anyway. Argonians, as far as he could tell, seemed to rely entirely on hair and skin color to distinguish one human from another. Many of them couldn't even determine gender properly, which might explain why the day and a half Clint had spent in Tony's bed hadn't raised any alien eyebrows.' Until Arch-Captain Kamani had shown an interest in him, Clint had probably been indistinguishable from any other blonde guard. Who cares if she can or not? Jan's hand was on the side of his neck again. Clint shifted his shoulders slightly, hoping the shivers that were still crawling over his skin would go away. It should have felt unpleasant, having someone that small moving against his bare skin, like an insect crawling on him but instead he found it even more distracting than the sky. He kept wanting to close his eyes and just feel her. No one had touched him in so long, not for months, unless you counted Tony when he'd been poisoned, and Clint didn't. What are they moving you? Is Tony going too? What are... That's why I'm moving, he cut in. They're setting up a new facility for engineers in some police station they've co-opted for doing sensitive repairs to equipment and manufacturing bombs and things, and Tony's being sent there. I didn't even know about it until a couple days ago. Do you know what I had to do to make sure I could be transferred there with him? I had to literally get down on one knee to ask Archcaptain Mamatu to, to transfer me to the new guard detachment there. She made me swear personal fealty to her. Seriously, fealty. Like in Robin Hood and I thought Cap and Thor were drama queens. There have been rumors, Jan said slowly. We knew they were about to start a large-scale weapons production, but we don't know where. The Navy guys in Brooklyn found— She broke off then. Clint, how exactly are you planning on staying in contact with me? I have no idea where you're going to be. I only found you the first time by pure luck. Clint grinned. "'feeling a momentary sense of smugness. "'I can give you the location.' "'He wasn't about to tell her how he'd learned it, though. "'Some things Jan, and by extension Cap and all the others, "'didn't need to know. "'Steve's been trying to find out "'where they were planning on opening that facility for a month,' "'she said quietly. "'He'd hoped for startled praise, "'or at least for her to sound visibly impressed.' but Jan's voice was dead serious. "'It's one of our top three strategic targets. "'If you can tell us where it is—' "'One police plaza.' "'Jan stared at him in shock, and he added, "'It's actually in the police station. "'I guess they thought it'd be secure. "'He'd been in there once, when he'd been young and dumb.' and when he'd overheard a couple of Argonian guards discussing the significance of the strange red statue out front, the entire thing had come flooding back. Agreeing to spar with one of the lowest-ranking Argonian guards to give him practice in beating up humans just confirmed it. It had also been humiliating, because Clint had had to let him win repeatedly in order to keep him in a good mood, while still fighting just well enough to be entertaining— It's not as big as this facility. Not as heavily defended, either. I think they're relying on the fact that almost no one knows the station is there to keep it secure. Clint, that's... She shook her head. At least, he thought she did, because her hair brushed against his neck. We haven't managed to take out one of their bases since Penn Station. If you think we have a chance against this one... It would be the biggest blow we've struck since the military operation in Brooklyn blew up Clark Street and Borough Hall. The Clark Street and Borough Hall stations were the first stations on most of the subway lines into Brooklyn, rendering them impassable had, combined with the sabotage of Manhattan Bridge, essentially cut off all subway access to the lower half of Brooklyn, massively restricting the Argonians' ability to operate there. Brooklyn had become almost as unpopular a duty station as Hell's Kitchen these days. You had to walk around above ground to get anywhere, and military snipers lurked on the upper floors of buildings, waiting to pick Argonian patrols off one by one. The resistance was making progress. Clint told himself that every day. Eventually, the Argonians would have to be worn down enough, would have lost enough men. "'that they would give up and leave. "'When it came to a war of attrition, after all, "'humans had six billion people, and the Argonians... "'Well, he actually didn't know how many of them there were, "'but it couldn't be more than a couple million. "'Maybe less than a million. "'At least a fifth of them were in New York City, "'and the resident Argonian forces didn't number more than about a hundred thousand. "'Even with over two-thirds of the city gone... Humans still had them outnumbered. Even if only some of those humans were fighting, they were still making progress. He just wasn't sure if they were making it fast enough. The clock to inevitable death by scurvy was ticking after all. Tell Cap to blow it up soon, he said, and get us out of there. He hesitated, then added. I don't know how much longer Tony's going to last. I don't know how much longer I'll last, he added silently. Just walking outside had made him want to cry. Jan's slight weight against his neck and shoulder felt like the most intimate human contact he'd ever had, so intense it was almost too much. He was tired all the time, a deep ache settling further into his bones by the day. And he'd never quite regained the energy he'd had before going ten rounds with the Argonian dachshunds. According to Hank, there's at least another month before the two of you will have full-blown scurvy. Because Hank, the biochemist and amateur robot building Dr. Frankenstein, was an expert on fatal diseases nobody got anymore. A couple of the older scientists already have bleeding gums. One of the human guards had actually lost two teeth already, but he wasn't sure that counted, because it had been right after the scorpion had hit him in the face with his metal tail during a training session. And I've had this? He held up his right hand at shoulder level so that Jan could see the angry red cut across one knuckle. For two weeks, and it hasn't even started to heal. The small gash... A souvenir of a training session with a sword was right around the edges and wouldn't close. It kept reopening, and Clint was starting to really hope they'd get out of here before they reached the old-wound-start-reopening stage of scurvy, because if that happened, Tony would probably be springing leaks like a sieve. Jan crawled out from the inside of his uniform collar and flew over to land on his hand, balancing lightly on the back of it and peering at the injury. Her weight was barely noticeable, but her hands tickled as she traced one along the edge of the cut. His eyes felt weirdly hot, and he blinked until the feeling went away. "'But that isn't what I meant,' he went on, trying manfully to suppress the impulse to blush. "'What the hell was wrong with him?' No one had cared about his cuts or bruises for a very long time, but he'd never been the kind of guy to start bawling just because someone showed him a little sympathy. Tony, though. Tony had always been desperate for approval. Back in California, he'd stuck around in what Clint had only later figured out was probably an abusive relationship, because he'd been so desperate for friendship or sex or whatever he and War Machine had been to each other then or maybe because he hadn't thought he deserved any better. It was a bizarre kind of neediness from someone who'd always been so arrogant, but Tony didn't often make sense. Every time one of the other scientists shut him out or sneered at him, he did that same pathetic little cringe thing he'd done then, drawing in on himself and staring at the floor. He wasn't sure how to explain that to someone who hadn't been there for it, though. If he hadn't seen it for himself... He wasn't sure he would have believed that Tony Stark, founding member of the Avengers, self-proclaimed genius, billionaire celebrity who could have any woman he wanted, was capable of being so deeply fucked up. I think he's starting to get that thing that makes baby monkeys die, Clint finally blurted out. Jan, who had been peering intently at Clint's cut, looked back up at him, frowning. "'That thing that what?' "'Clint shrugged. "'He could feel his face burning. "'That had sounded stupid even in his own head. "'They did this experiment back in the seventies or something, with monkeys. "'I saw it on the Discovery Channel. "'It was horrible. "'Just thinking about it, "'about the grainy film footage of limp, apathetic little monkeys "'huddled in the corners of barren cement cages— "'made him feel sick all over again. "'They tortured them,' he told her. "'Nobody ever touched them or loved them or anything, "'and they went crazy and died, "'because they wanted to prove that people needed love or something. "'They were in these horrible little cages, "'and they didn't even have toys or get to play with other monkeys or anything.' "'He broke off, realizing belatedly that he'd begun raising his voice.' "'It happened ages ago,' he reminded himself. "'And it definitely wasn't something worth getting caught and tortured over.' "'Jan stared up at him, her eyes fixed on his face. "'This documentary really upset you, didn't it? "'I didn't take you for the animal rights activist type.' "'They were babies. "'And they hadn't looked like animals. "'They'd had faces.' "'in tiny little hands, like human children. "'And they were torturing them,' he repeated. "'He looked away, blinking, as his eyes grew hot again. "'What the hell? "'He was not going to cry over goddamn monkeys. "'They were probably all dead now, anyway.' "'Jan's weight vanished from his hand, "'and then she was standing in front of him, full size.' pulling Clint deeper into the shadow of the doorway so that no one outside of a direct line of sight could see them, and down into a fierce hug. Clint went stiff, completely unsure what he was supposed to do. No one had touched him this gently in months, Now, counting the time he was sick. Even before the Argonians, no one had... Not since Bobby died. Clint took a half-step forward, "'closing his eyes and leaning into Jan. "'He had to bend down slightly to do it, "'and then they were kissing. "'He had no idea which of them had started it, "'and he didn't care. "'Jan felt nice, tasted nice, even smelled nice. "'Not like chemicals or metalworking "'or the Argonian's strange, musty-sweet fur smell. "'Then Jan turned her face away, breaking the kiss.' and Clint heard himself make a pathetic little sound of protest. I shouldn't have done that. Clint opened his eyes, blinking at Jan. He probably ought to let go of her, he thought, but he couldn't make himself do it. No, he agreed, hugging her even harder and burying his face in her hair. Probably not. I really shouldn't have done that. Jan's hands closed gently around his wrist, and she began attempting to disentangle herself from his grasp. Clint, let go. Clinton do anything to women that they didn't want, even hug them. So he released his hold on her and took a couple steps back, suddenly realizing how cold it was out here nothing but standard-issue blacks. Argonians never wore winter coats. They didn't need to. They had fur. Jan wore nothing but skin-tight black and red, covering her from ankles to wrists, and it had to be even colder than he was. She stood there, arms wrapped around herself, staring at Clint as if she'd never seen him before. "'I... I have to go now,' she blurted out. "'I'll tell Cap about the change in location.' She started to reach for him, then abruptly pulled her hand back. We'll get you out, Clint, you and Tony, I promise. Just hold on a little longer, okay? Before he could answer, Jan had shrunk down again and was flying away. Clint stared after her, feeling empty and painfully alone. Painfully stupid, too. What the hell had that been about? He knew better than to try and put the moves on Jan. She might not actually be married to Hank anymore, but everyone knew that was just a technicality. The two of them were back together again, and even when they weren't, any time Jan was with somebody else, it was pretty much guaranteed to be an attempt to make Hank jealous. He knew that. He did. It was just... he'd wanted someone to touch him so badly not even really for anything sexual so much as just physical contact with another person. And it had been Jan, the one person other than Tony whom he could talk to and trust, not to mention a woman he'd found attractive since before he was old enough to drink. It was a good thing he and Tony had to stay on guard and try to look casual around one another, because otherwise Clint would probably be cuddling up to him like he was a teddy bear, and that was something that he would never be able to live down. Tony would either bitch at him, or worse, try kissing him or something the way Clint just had with Jan, and then Clint's misery and humiliation would be complete. He shouldn't be letting it get to him like this. He'd volunteered for this. Going under had been his idea, and he'd insisted on staying with the Argonians over Jan and Cap's protests. And now here he was, clinging to Jan and practically begging her to rescue him, He was starting to understand bits of Argonian now. Could grasp some of the orders Mamatu snapped at him even when there was no one to translate them into English. He was learning their goddamn language. And he was scared stiff at the idea of being moved someplace else tomorrow. Christ, you'd think after months trapped underground in that miserable cave, he'd look forward to a change of scenery. But all he could do was worry. What if Jan couldn't find him again after all? What if they couldn't arrange a meeting place? What if Clint was stationed in some part of the base away from Tony, and both of them ended up entirely on their own? He couldn't leave Tony alone with the Argonians. No matter how quickly Cat mounted an assault on the police station, it couldn't possibly be soon enough. She hadn't
5: expected the subway to be so attractive. Ercala herself rarely ventured outside the tight security of Grand Central. But the accounts she had heard of human subway stations from those who had, had not been encouraging, to say the least. And the subway cars themselves had borne that out, easily living down to expectations. Mechanicos and human laborers had stripped the filthy floors and original, uncomfortable, and unattractive plastic seating from the cramped little cars, replacing them with new, clean flooring and brown and deep maroon leather bench seats that allowed proper room for one's tail. The human advertisements and other trash that had previously adorned the walls had been ripped down, and some especially industrious mechanicos had hammered copper inlay into the metal poles that filled the car's interior, so that each metal pole was wrapped in a loose spiral of script, ranging from quotations of a Lulum, to stanzas from epic poems. It helped considerably, but the car was still too small and the underlying architecture was crude and ugly. When she stepped out of the car onto the gently curving platform beneath the new scientific installation at City Hall, carefully avoiding the wide gap between car and platform, the train cars were clearly not designed to properly fit in this particular station. However, she was pleasantly surprised to find herself standing beneath an arched roof decorated with interlocking tiles in brown, green, and cream. The station was clearly very old, and in some disrepair. Tiles were missing or broken in several places. But at one time, it must have been truly beautiful. The elaborate glass skylights set in the ceiling were works of art. The humans had apparently completely closed it down, which made security much easier, since the entrances and exits had all been sealed off. Only one had been reopened, and six Argonian warriors were standing at attention before it, waiting to escort her above ground and across the open square above into the new engineering and weapons manufacturing installation. It is very bold of you to inspect the new facilities personally, Archon, Nergal said smoothly as he came forward to meet her. You need not have troubled yourself. Arch Captain Mamatou and I could have performed the necessary duties easily without risking exposing you to human attacks. Erkala raised her eyebrows. Are you saying that your soldiers cannot protect me in the brief time it will take me to travel from the station to the building? She indicated the six guards with the end of her tail, the gesture intended to draw attention to her tail barb. They look perfectly capable to me. I do not fear attack by humans. What warrior would? The end of Nurgle's tail began twitching back and forth irritably, but his face and voice remained calm. Nevertheless, I must urge caution. You are, after all, the last remaining descendant of Alulum. Was it her imagination, or was there an element of implied threat in that statement? It was not the first time he had brought up her lack of an air, and while others had mentioned it as well, Including Arch Captain Kamani, from his lips it had sinister overtones that others' words did not. "You are the last," it said. "Remember how vulnerable you are. How tragic it would be for Argon for Lulam's line to end. Whomever would we find to rule us then?" There are times when caution is not a virtue, Imperator," she said, walking past him towards the exit. The guards fell into step around her, flanking her on all sides. Rest assured, I shall not let down my guard. Nurgle had no option but to follow her, of course. Making him scramble up the steps after her was a petty victory, but satisfying nonetheless. The sunlight outside was blindingly bright, a harsh white glare that made the huge red thing in the center of the square even uglier. She thought perhaps the large construct of red painted metal was meant to be some kind of human art. It certainly served no functional purpose. But surely the species that had produced the painted ceiling in Grand Central and the tastefully decorated station platform she had just left understood art and was capable of creating it properly. Perhaps it was the product of some human superstition intended to ward off some form of evil spirit? The new engineering and weapons installation was another exercise in ugliness, a blocky building that looked as if it had been dropped carelessly where it sat, without regard for whether it belonged with the other buildings on the square or not. It had previously been the command center of a human warrior organization tasked with enforcing the law, which had made implementing appropriate security measures much easier. The guards stationed at the entrance were a mix of Argonian and human, including one human who proudly wore not just warrior blacks, but the single copper stud at his collar that marked him as a member of the army's lowest rank. Art Captain Kamani had been swift to act upon her callous promise to grant citizenship to deserving humans. All the guards, humans included, saluted crisply as they approached. The inside of the building was just as sterile as the outside. The bottom floors had been gutted, and labs, workshops, and maintenance facilities built in place of whatever human things had once been there. Unlike the subway cars, no attempt had been made to make the surroundings more livable or attractive. Most of the workers here would be human, not Argonians, so it would have been a wasted effort. They toured the manufacturing facilities first, while a nervous mechanicos, eyes submissively downcast, explained what the various pieces of machinery were for. Urkella understood less than half of it, but the mechanico spoke with an air of one who was sure of her knowledge, if intimidated by her audience, so the operation was clearly in competent hands. Nurgle's attention was focused almost solely on the guards and security details, ensuring that the human workers would have no opportunity to commit sabotage and would not be able to escape leaving Urcala free to ask more important questions, like when the first set of missiles and the replacement aircraft engines would be completed. The answer, of course, was not soon enough, and unfortunately there was little more that could be done to hasten the process. Still, the awe and pride on the Mechanico's face when she spoke to them, obviously stunned and pleased that the Archon had visited their stations in person, were more than enough to make her glad she had come. Like everyone else, the Argonians here had lost everything that was dear to them and been thrust into an unfamiliar and hostile world. It was vital to remind them that what they were doing was important, that their archons still cared about them, that their government still functioned, and that they would not give up hope. It didn't matter that her own faith in their ability to return to Argon was faltering. For her people, for a little while, she could pretend otherwise. A project of vital importance, Ninarkala, the Russetford senior mechanicos responsible for the aircraft engines was saying. The metal fatigue alone is taking significant toll on maintenance workers' time. We hope to complete the first new engine within the week, now that everything is in place and the main facility has sent us him. He gestured at a human scientist, currently standing beside what looked like a pile of metal scraps, but was probably pieces of the engine. He wasn't particularly impressive, thin and short as all humans were, and his slump-shouldered posture sang of submission and defeat, to an extent unusual even for a mechanicos. Why is this one human of such importance? she asked. The mechanicos ducked his head slightly, his ears lowering. Forgive me, Ninerkala, I ought to have explained. He is the one who aided Mechanico's Ismud in drawing the plans for the engine's construction. The humans claim he is a genius, one of their most respected of their Mechanicos. Erkala gave the human a long, careful second look, but could see no sign of anything particularly special. An Argonian Mechanicos would be ashamed to stand in the presence of a warrior, much less the Archon herself, with an attitude of such obvious misery and shame. The senior Mechanicos had been careful to keep his back straight, even when apologizing, no matter how much respect and humility he showed with his ears, tail, and downcast eyes. Even here, even now, Alulum's children were not defeated she would have to take heart from that. Surely they could build themselves another empire, wherever they ultimately went, whether out of the ashes of Argonne or some new world entirely, preferably an unpopulated one, where they wouldn't have to waste the energies of most of their personnel on pacifying the native population. Nurgle had finished his inspection of the building's security and was now casting significant glances in her direction conveying with a meaningful swish of his tail that it was time for her to return to Grand Central where she belonged, and leave overseeing their defenses and weapons productions to the professionals. It inspired within her a strong desire to stay much, much longer, and possibly personally interview every single Mechanicos in the building, and perhaps even some humans, if any of them spoke a civilized language. However, that would have been childish and there were matters to see to back at Grand Central. Erkala offered Nurgle a polite smile and immediately ended her conversation with the senior Mechanicos, crossing the room to stand at Nurgle's side like the good little subordinate he so wished to make her. Have you completed your inspection, Argon? he asked, tone as condescending as if you were speaking to a child. Yes, she said coolly. I am quite satisfied. She made a show of looking around the room one final time, taking in the blank white walls, bare except for a large gray metal panel inset into one of them. The incomprehensible jumble of machine parts, the human scientists still standing stiffly at attention, the mechanicos with their ears ducked down in respect. It was a bleak and depressing room, and she felt a moment's gratitude that Vanderbilt Hall, and her own apartments, were an entirely different style of human architecture. For once, walking outside into the painful glare was actually a relief, though nowhere near as much of a relief as walking out of the glare and into the soothing dimness of the subway platform again. You were correct about the benefit to morale, Nergal commented, as the two of them boarded the subway car once more. But it was still a foolhardy risk to take. The humans grow ever bolder, and our situation even more precarious. Keeping the contempt off her face took effort, so he was now willing to admit how desperate their tactical situation was, was he? What a shame this change of heart hadn't come months ago. I have often said so, she murmured instead. I did not expect to hear it from you, however. Situations change, and strategies must change with them. Indeed? She raised her eyebrows, ears cocked at an angle of polite interest. I take it you have a change of strategy in mind? Your previous efforts to deal with the situation have met with such success. His eyes narrowed, but otherwise kept his composure. The armory has been receiving conflicting messages of late. They require a strong leader. How fortunate, then, that they have you. His left ear twitched, and he continued, voice serious. The Empire has always needed strong leaders in times of crisis, since the day of the great Alulum himself. It is what kept us victorious, even in defeat. She recognized the work he was paraphrasing, of course every well-educated Argonian would have. Ahasuni's Treatise on the Scandian War. It was a brilliant piece of political theory for its time, if somewhat dated. There are certain measures that have proven successful in similar situations in the past, when the Tantalans attacked and occupied Argon's lunar colonies. You want to declare a military emergency and make yourself head of state in my place? She stated, bluntly, interrupting. There was an ancient provision in Argonian law that allowed the head of the military to assume control of the empire in times of dire peril, provided the head of the military and the archon were not already one and the same. Alulum himself had risen to power in such a fashion, first assuming leadership of all the newborn empire's armies and only later becoming the first archon in the wake of his victory at Manawurtum. Only temporarily, Ninerkala, he said calmly, for once using the proper honorific. Only so long as the resistance continues to escalate. Once the rebels have been pacified, I would of course step down and hand power back over to you. The appointment of an Imperator as a temporary dictator requires a unanimous vote by the Advisory Council, something that is, unfortunately, impossible at the present time. Impossible, because the entire council was dead, two of them very probably at Nurgle's hand. It also requires that I willingly surrender power to you. Ah, but you forget, Archon, with the rest of your advisors dead, I am your advisory council, and as such I have given you my advice. And how long would I live, she wondered, once I took it? She toyed with the idea that Nergal wished for her to make him her consort in order to rule through their child, but it appeared that she had erred in underestimating the extent of his ambitions. He did not simply wish to make her or her hypothetical offspring his puppet, he wished to replace her and rule in his own right. If she stepped aside temporarily, of course and let Nergal rule in her stead, then with the council gone. It required only her death for him to rule completely unopposed. And with the line of Alulum ended forever, the empire would require a new archon, a new dynasty. She dropped her gaze to the vertical pole that stood beside her seat, trying to think of an appropriate response. Destroying an empire to win a war is no victory, the flowing copper characters proclaimed and ending a battle to save an empire is no defeat. Even were her own life not at stake, Nergal's leadership would destroy them all in the end. If circumstances were not dire enough to warrant such a measure during our flight from Argon, I do not think they are so now. Unless you truly believe us in worse case now than we were then? Which was something Nergal could not say without admitting that his decision to invade and occupy Earth had been wrong, something he would never admit to at any time, and certainly not within the hearing of his soldiers. She could not help casting a glance at the black uniformed soldiers stationed at either end of the car, who had suddenly taken on a much more threatening aspect. How hard would Nurgle's handpicked subordinates truly defend if it came to a human attack? Perhaps she would find herself fighting her own people as well as the rebels if such an eventuality occurred. I would not describe it thus, he said, and she thought she detected a note of discomfort in his voice. Our situation is not as desperate as it was then, but that does not mean the strong guidance of an experienced military leader would not improve it. How fortunate, then, that of the rest of my council you remain to offer me your... She hesitated for a fraction of a second. Guidance. You have complete command of the army, Imperator. That ought to be sufficient to accomplish what must be done. There is no victory without combat. Wise words indeed, Urcala reflected. They had been true when Alulum had first spoke them over a thousand years ago, and time had not diminished that truth. She had defined victory, initially, as the rebuilding of their empire. Now, she was more inclined to see it as simply survival, and Nurgle stood in the path of both goals, for her people and herself. There was no victory without combat, and there was no combat without an enemy, and Nurgle, she had come to realize, was as much an enemy as any member of the human resistance, or those who had driven them out of Argonne. I will defend my authority against all challenges, ran the oath she had sworn upon assuming the mantle of Archon, bear the honor and shame of my command upon my own shoulders, and fight to the death against any who would seek to destroy Argon. Enemies of the Argonian Empire, by necessity, had a very short life expectancy.
7: Even after months of Argonian occupation, it still felt unnatural to do one's sneaking around in broad daylight, especially at full size. Wanda, on the other hand, seemed completely at ease with the entire situation, but then she had been doing this far more often than Jan had. Every time Jan had approached an Argonian stronghold before, she had been small enough to be nearly invisible. This time, she was relying entirely on Wanda's powers to shield them both from discovery. The two of them were currently standing in front of one police plaza, while Wanda, her head cocked slightly to one side, stared up at the giant modernist sculpture someone had planted in the middle of the sidewalk. I think I like it, she said, after a long moment had passed. It's very colorful. You like it? Jan blinked and turned to stare up at Wanda. No one likes modern civic art, that's the whole point of it. That wasn't precisely true, of course, but as far as she remembered from the art history class she'd had to take while studying design, being aesthetically pleasing had not necessarily been one of modernist or minimalist sculpture's major goals, particularly during the 70s. The giant piece of plop art harmonized oddly well with the blocky, brutalist building that had once housed the NYPD's headquarters, though. One police plaza had been deliberately designed to be ugly, which made the fact that it was now home to an Argonian weapons manufacturing plant all the more fitting. Clint was in there now, and Tony. For the first time since this entire mess began, the possibility of a rescue was within reach. No matter how many guards Jan and Wanda found here... many security checkpoints and alarms, it was still vastly more accessible than the underground prison the Argonians had been keeping Tony in. If all else failed, they could always simply blast their way in. Walls did very well to stop Angelica these days, and they'd never been much of an obstacle to Ben Grimm in a bad mood. I'm going to take a closer look at the entrance, Jan announced. She took a step to the building so that Wanda's body was between her and the front of the building, before shrinking down. Wanda had placed a hex over both of them, intended to divert the guards' attention away from them, but she wasn't sure it would hold up against the sight of a woman shrinking down to the size of a bug. Check the windows, too, Wanda said, turning away from the sculpture to focus on Jan's hovering form. The best way in isn't always the front door. Jan shrugged, exaggerating the motion to make sure it was visible. When you're my size, the best way in is usually the keyhole in the front door. Wanda's lips, giant now, twitched for a fraction of a second, and then she was serious again. There are perimeter guards posted all around the building, and I think they may have more people stationed in City Hall Park, hiding somewhere in all the trees. Cap wants everyone's location. Again, Jan started. The distraction spell works better when it's just me, Wanda cut in. One of the benefits of working alone. Her last few missions had been solo, Jan remembered, which struck her as slightly odd, given that most of Wanda's previous missions had been carried out with Carol or Spider-Man along for the ride. Twenty minutes, she said. I'll meet you back at the sculpture. There were two guards stationed at the front entrance, and she could see more inside, visible through the windows. The layout of the lobby had been entirely altered, and she found herself wishing once again for the ability to shrink objects. Photographs would have been invaluable. One of the many former NYPD officers in the resistance had worked here before, but his memories of the building's layout were clearly no longer going to be accurate. She would just have to describe it as best she could when Steve debriefed her. She had never quite realized how useful Clint's information on Argonian troop movements, defenses, and guard rotations was until they didn't have access to it anymore. Clint... Clint was inside there, somewhere, maybe only a few hundred feet away. After over a week without seeing him, she couldn't entirely suppress the worry nagging at the corners of her mind. "'Was he all right?' Was Tony alright? Had one of the Argonians scratched them with its tail barb again? Had they been caught? Were they even still in contact with one another in this new building, or was each of them entirely alone? She wasn't sure either of them could handle being alone, not under the circumstances, not anymore. Clint had been oddly subdued the last time she'd spoken to him, barely smiling. There had been a slump to his shoulders, and his eyes had been ringed with dark circles that had been there ever since he'd been poisoned. And his eyes themselves, they had reminded her uneasily of the way Tony had looked, standing in Grand Central's main concourse, his face turned up to the sunlight, like a starving man in the presence of food and afraid to let himself eat. And the kiss, he'd clung to her like he was trying to bury himself in her body. That was familiar, too, both from Tony, during their brief, ill-advised fling, and from Hank, at his most depressed and desperate. How much longer would either of them last if she couldn't get them out? Jan leaned against one of the third-floor windows, pressing her hands and face against the glass in an attempt to see as wide a slice of the room as possible. The glass was cold against her fingers. Inside the room, a handful of humans were working on what looked like an engine, under the supervision of two Argonian mechanicals and a human guard. Clint and Tony were nowhere in sight. No one she recognized was, except for the guard, who, even without his green costume, was unmistakably the scorpion. In black, with his cybernetic tail curled up over his shoulder, he looked like a poor imitation of an Argonian. She supposed, working for the Argonians didn't require much self-justification if your previous employer had been the kingpin. If only she were able to get inside, she'd be able to map the layout of the building. As it was, they were going to be going in, not blind, but the next thing to it. At Penn Station, they'd had building plans to work with, know the ins and outs of the building, the dead ends, the potential escape routes. And that had been a train station, designed for easy ingress and egress not a police station with a vested interest in keeping unauthorized people out of sensitive areas. One of the Mechanicos began to slowly stroll around the room, drawing perilously near the window, and Jan had to duck sideways and tuck herself against the wall of the building until he had passed. She couldn't afford to hang around here any longer, regardless of whether or not she'd gotten all the information they needed. Wanda's distraction hex was no longer covering her, and Every moment she spent peering in windows increased her chances of being caught. All it would take was someone looking at her at the wrong moment. She took her time flying back to the sculpture, flying low through the cluster of leafless trees that surrounded the building, letting the bare branches shield her from view. By the time she reached the giant red structure, Wanda was already there waiting for her. "'There are twelve guards stationed around the building, in pairs,' Wanda said by way of greeting.' and a half dozen more in the park all alone. They're sure to have a way to call up reinforcements, though. Jan returned to full size, letting the bulk of the structure shield her from sight as she did so, and shrugged on the heavy wool overcoat Wanda handed her, hiding her costume from view. As the two of them walked, slowly, casually, out of the square and down park row, she gave Wanda a brief description of everything she'd observed. It's funny, she concluded. I kept expecting to see Clint everywhere I looked. It feels wrong to leave without talking to him. That's usually the whole point of these things. Wanda's step faltered for a second, and she cast a hopeful glance at Jan. Did you see him? Jan shook her head. No, I didn't see Tony either. I hope they're okay. A cold gust of wind blew past them, whipping her hair into her face. She pulled her coat around herself a little more tightly. I don't like going this long without hearing from them. No, Wanda agreed. I think not knowing is the worst part. They walked the next several blocks in silence until they were far enough away to be out of the danger zone. They were almost back at the hotel when Wanda spoke again. Can I ask you something? About what? Carol is... Wanda looked away, staring at the ground. I think she's scared of me now. Carol was... that didn't make any sense. Wanda was more in control of her powers right now than she had been in a long time. Jan frowned. It also didn't sound like Carol. Carol isn't scared of anything, including things she should be scared of. Wanda shook her head. That's not true, she said, sounding almost rueful. She's afraid of losing her powers, of getting turned away again. Of being controlled. Her voice had gone tight and strange, and she hesitated for a second before adding all kinds of things. Really? She always seemed so confident. Which probably sounded as silly as it was. Jan had enough experience with models, designers, and minor celebrities to know that a confident, even arrogant, attitude could serve as a mask for a bottomless pit of insecurity. Carol didn't seem like the type, though. Most of the painfully insecure women Jan knew based their entire self-worth on how small a clothing size they could fit into, or rather their picture, or a picture of their designs, made it into vogue. Well, she's not, Wanda said, any more than Tony or Hank actually are. But that's not the point. She's... I may have made a big mistake. She bit her lip, silent for a moment, then blurted out. She and Jessica Drew really were just friends, weren't they? Wanda had been there in California, after Hank and Tony had both completely fallen apart. Jan still felt guilty about the fact that she hadn't been. That it had taken Hank accidentally hospitalizing himself via spider venom before they had spoken face to face again. It was stupid. She knew it hadn't been her fault, that she'd had no choice but to leave, that staying with him would only have made things worse. But she couldn't kill the little bit of doubt that whispered that maybe she could have prevented some of it if she'd done something when she had first realized how much of a mess Hank was. People didn't suddenly begin acting like entirely different people, erratic and out-of-control different people, without a reason. In retrospect, it should have been obvious that something was very wrong. If he found out about Clint, he would think it was his fault, that she had wanted to punish him somehow, or that she wanted to end things again. Wait, Wanda had said something about Carol and Jessica Drew. She and... what? What else would they be? I thought they were involved, Wanda muttered very quietly. I thought she was interested in me, so I, uh, kissed her. Then she left me behind in the middle of a mission and hasn't spoken to me since. Jan stared at her. You're bisexual? It was probably the least important aspect of the whole thing, and she knew she sounded like an idiot, but since when? Since always, Wanda gestured sharply with one gloved hand. That's not the point. You never said anything. I'm a half-Romani, half-Jewish mutant who used to be married to a robot. I tried to avoid collecting new labels at this point. I've already experienced the joy of men telling me that I ought to find out what it's like with a real man. Jan's lips twitched in a smile that had nothing to do with amusement, as she and Wanda shared a silent, knowing look. Then Wanda turned her face away again, sighing. Jan, what do I do? Every relationship I've had has gone down in flames. I don't know how to fix this, if I should apologize or pretend it never happened or something else. You and Hank have gotten through so much. What do you think? I think I'm the last person who should be giving out relationship advice right now, considering that the last time I saw Clint, I kissed him. It wasn't funny, but she couldn't help laughing a little anyway. <laughs> Ill-advised kisses seemed to be in vogue at the moment. Wanda blinked, her eyebrows arching up. Why? I thought you and Hank were... I don't know, she interrupted. We are. Clint was just so lonely and sad, and and it feels like half of what I do these days is worry about him, and I guess I thought it might I don't know what I was thinking. I'm not even really sure if I'm the one who started it, but I didn't stop it, and that's all that really matters. How could I have been so stupid? Hank would be crushed if he found out. He'd be convinced I wanted to break things off again, and Clint... She shook her head. I don't know what he wants. I'm not sure it was actually about me at all. What do you mean, not about you? He was just standing there, clinging to me, like a little kid with a teddy bear. As she said it, she wondered, not for the first time, what the Argonians were really doing to him. She knew there were things about his mission that he wasn't telling her, details he was leaving out in an attempt to keep her from worrying or avoid sounding less than macho, and clearly those things were starting to wear him down. Wanda frowned. That doesn't sound like Clint. Clint isn't needy like that. Jan raised her eyebrows. What do you mean isn't needy? This is Clint we're talking about. Clint thrived on attention, positive or negative, especially female attention. Having sad crushes on your female teammates isn't the same as being needy. Which was slightly mean, Jan reflected, but not untrue. Clint lashes out when he's upset, Wanda went on. He doesn't cling to people. After Bobby died, he tried to close people out. He didn't do anything like this. She hesitated for a moment, sighing again. If Clint's in bad shape, Tony must be in even worse shape. He's not as stable as Clint. No, Jan agreed and felt guilty suddenly for the fact that She was spending so much energy worrying about her relationship with Hank and the fact that Clint had kissed her, instead of worrying about the war and Clint and Tony's lives. He's not. I don't know what you should do about Carol. I don't know what I should do either. I'm not sure it's even that important right now. The Argonians could kill one of us or all of us tomorrow. Wanda shook her head, smiling a little. You're right. I just don't want to lose anyone else, especially not now. I wish I knew how Cap does it. He always manages to stay focused on the important things, no matter what's going on around him. In truth, Jan was almost as worried about Steve as she was about Tony and Clint and Hank, whom it felt like she never stopped worrying about. He might be focused, but she wasn't sure it was a good or healthy kind of focused. Has he talked to you about anything other than tactics since Vance was killed? Not really, Wanda admitted after a moment. No. Jan nodded. I didn't think so. Wanda shrugged one shoulder and pushed a piece of wind blown hair out of her eyes. I know, but I like to pretend that someone in our organization isn't terrified that we'll lose everything we have. Well, we're not going to lose Clint and Tony because they hadn't yet, and she refused to even let herself entertain the thought that they would. If Clint could survive being poisoned with barely any medical attention, and Tony could survive having his heart filled by shrapnel, they could live through anything. They're not hundreds of feet underground anymore. We're getting them out of there if we have to blow the place apart. It's odd that you mention that, and Wanda's smile looked real for the first time today. Because according to what he has told me, that's basically what Cap has in mind. Jan found herself smiling back, more pleased than she had ever been at the prospect of destroying something. Good. Chapter
0: 12
8: Debriefings with Steve were abrupt, personal affairs these days. Jan was right. He was going out of his way to keep everyone at a distance. Wanda tried hard not to be hurt by that. She knew what it was like to be afraid of losing people, and much as she wanted to hold on to the comforting belief that Steve, at least, had confidence in their ability to defeat their Argonians, she knew he was every bit as frightened and worried as the rest of them. The sooner they got Clint and Tony out of the Argonians' clutches, the better. The whole undercover spying affair had gone on long enough, and the two of them had a limited amount of time in which the conditions of the Argonians were keeping them in were even survivable, it was time to put an end to it before they lost any more Avengers. They had lost enough people already—Vision, Vance, Thor, the Falcon— and everyone else outside the shield bubble, who might very well be dead for all they knew. Wanda exited the dining room, leaving Jan alone with Steve to go over what she'd seen of the building's interior a third time. Wanda had already gone over everything she had been able to learn about the exterior defenses, twice, and after using her hex powers continuously for most of the day, she was starving. Other women had told her repeatedly how envious they were of her energy mutant's metabolism, but needing to consume more calories than a normal woman of her size was as much a nuisance as an asset. When she and Petro had been teenagers, rootless and desperate after their mother had died, Hunger had been a constant, nagging presence. Petro had always been on the skinny side, but he had been bone-thin then. The days after they had been recruited by Magneto had been the first time in months that she hadn't had to watch her brothers slowly starve. She had expected the kitchenette to be crowded. Franklin and Valeria were always underfoot somewhere, and Johnny, who needed to eat almost as much as an energy mutant thanks to his own powers, had made the room his second home but then Johnny was still hobbling around on crutches and spent a lot of nights sleeping at the Daily Buell building now, and the children had started refusing to go anywhere without Ben or Johnny after Johnny had been hurt, so it wasn't as much of a surprise as it might have been to walk into the little room and find no one there but Angie, sitting at the kitchen table with her head in her hands. The Avengers hotel suite was painfully overcrowded, but Angie still managed to find places to be alone there, something that must have required making an active effort to hide. Wanda had tried her best to leave the younger woman alone. She understood what it was like to hurt so much that you couldn't bear to be around anyone. Even after all of the time had passed, looking at Franklin and Valeria still made her ache a little. She couldn't help but wonder what her children would have been like if they had had a chance to grow up. But Angie looked so painfully alone that she found she couldn't follow her initial instinct to simply grab food and leave. Wanda pulled one of the packages of ramen that had become one of the Resistance's staples. Stores had stocked it in large quantities before the Argonians came, and it kept forever, and set a pot of water on the tiny stove, using a controlled flare of chaos magic to make it boil instantly. As she dropped the dried noodles into the water, she racked her brain for something, anything supportive to say to Angie. "'I could have done that for you, you know.' Angie's voice was hoarse. She had been crying again, obviously.' I know, Wanda said. I didn't want to bother you, and honestly, I need all the practice with chaos magic that I can get. She didn't mention the crying or even look at Angie, giving her at least the illusion of privacy to compose herself. There was silence while the ramen cooked. Wanda poured it into two bowls and carried it over to the table, setting one bowl down in front of Angie. There were times when she really missed ice cream, and this was one of them. I'm not hungry, Angie mumbled into her hands. "'You're a nineteen-year-old energy mutant,' Wanda said gently. "'You're always hungry.' "'Angie sighed heavily, but she started eating her ramen, "'so Wanda counted it as a victory. "'She ate a spoonful of her elm soup, "'making a face at the excessive amount of salt, and then added, "'If you want to talk about anything, I... "'She trailed off, but Angie clearly got the general idea anyway. "'The thing thinks I'm too violent,' she blurted out. "'Mr. It's clobbering time,' thinks I'm unreliable and need to calm down. No, Carol is unreliable and needs to calm down, Wanda thought. She immediately felt guilty, both because the thought was unjust and because Carol's current lack of calm was at least partially Wanda's fault. Why does he think that? If Angie was out of control, Wanda hadn't noticed. She hadn't been paying as much attention to the rest of her teammates as she should have, beyond Steve and Carol— It was hard sometimes to remember that the Avengers extended beyond the small core of people who had been on the team for years. Herself, Cap, Clint, Simon, Hank and Jan, Tony, Vision. I don't know, Angie gestured sharply, the motion jerky with frustration, then buried her head in her hands. He thinks I'm on some kind of revenge trip. What am I supposed to do, go easy on them? They're trying to kill us all. They killed Vance, they... She broke off drawing in a long, unsteady breath. If I'd been willing to use my full powers against them from the start, maybe I could have stopped them. Maybe I could have saved him. Wanda knew that feeling far, far better than she wanted to. If only she had been there for Vision. If only she had been there when Vision had been taken away and disassembled, had reacted just a little bit more quickly when Marcus had kidnapped Carol right in front of her, had been faster, better, more in control of her powers... She also understood being willing to do anything to defend people you cared about, to sacrifice principles for the sake of people. She had left the X-Men because she had believed, still believed, that going out and helping people did more good in the long run than hiding from them. But in hindsight, the fact that she couldn't place abstract principles over the people she loved would have made her a bad fit for Xavier's team anyway. She reached across the table and took Angie's hand, squeezed it, and tried to think of something to say. I could have killed them all as soon as we got there, Angie went on, and then he'd be fine. Wanda winced. That line of thought was familiar, too painfully and persuasively so, and not from the X-Men. Maybe, she acknowledged. But you can't live like that. If you go too far down that path, you can never come back from it. Angie yanked her hand away, eyes narrowing. Don't moralize at me. You don't know what it's like. Don't I? "'Wanda raised an eyebrow. "'The world is not a safe place for mutants. "'If I tried to strike first, to hurt people before they hurt me, "'I'd spend my whole life hurting people. "'It was why she and Petro had left Magneto, "'once they had realized what kind of a man he was. "'They're not people,' Angie snapped, "'hunching her shoulders defensively and glaring down into her empty bowl. "'If there was one thing Wanda had learned a long time ago, "'it was that you didn't need to be human in order to be a person.' And yet, she had killed Argonians, too, wiped almost half a squad of them out in explosions when she had thought they'd killed Carol. And she still didn't feel any guilt over it, not the way she should have. "'People say that about us,' she pointed out, feeling like a hypocrite as she did so. It wasn't a fair argument to use on a fellow mutant, but it was something none of them could afford to forget. "'I hate them.' Angie's voice was tight, brittle with unshed tears. "'I know,' Wanda said quietly. "'I hate them, too.' "'She was surprised to discover how much she meant it. "'She couldn't do this,' she decided abruptly. "'Who was she to lecture Angelica on why vengeance was wrong, "'or how you shouldn't let your anger fester, "'or, worst of all, that you needed to forgive people for hurting you "'or the people you loved? "'She might have left Magneto in the beginning, "'but after Vision and the twins had been taken from her, "'she had gone right back to him.' Back to vengeance and anger and hate. Things didn't hurt so much when you were angry, and anger gave you the strength to keep yourself going when nothing else was left. Django Maximoff was the only father Wanda would ever acknowledge, but she was afraid, sometimes, that deep down she and Petro were both lynchers where it counted. And if she let this conversation go on much longer, she might forget that that wasn't something she wanted to be. She stood and carried her empty bowl over to set it in the tiny sink, then turned back to Angie. "'You probably want me to leave you alone, right?' she asked, hoping the answer would be yes. Angie nodded silently. "'All right,' Wanda said. "'I'll just... go. If you ever need someone to talk to, though, I will. I can at least listen.' "'Thank you.' Angie smiled wanly at her, sounding like she had no intention of taking Wanda up on the offer. Wanda nearly fled the kitchen, retreating back to her corner of the bedroom she shared with Angie and Jan, and Carol, when she was there. "'I hate them, too,' she repeated to herself, hoping the words would ring hollow this time. They didn't. She sat in her sleeping bag, drawing her legs up under her, and rubbed absently at the mostly healed burn scar on her shoulder where the plasma bolt had hit her. They had come and taken Vision away from her again, taking Clint away hurt and threatened her friends, and killed thousands of people. She was tired of sleeping in a hotel room, taking her turns in a sleeping bag on the floor every other night. Tired of running and hiding and fighting, of never going outside without a hex to hide herself from sight. Tired of eating ramen and canned soup and power bars. Tired of watching other people bleed. Tired of living in fear. Tired of being alone. She might be surrounded by people and completely deprived of privacy, but she was still isolated. Vision was gone. Steve had shut everyone out. Clint and Tony were locked away behind Argonian Guard. Hank never left his lab in the basement anymore. Simon was spending almost all his time with the non-powered part of the resistance, lending firepower and air support to the ex-policemen and ex-military personnel that made up the bulk of their forces. She had barely spoken to him in weeks. Jan was busy running scouting missions and carrying messages. The Avengers had always been like a family. The first family other than Petro that she'd had since her mother had died. Now they felt more like soldiers in an army, working towards a common goal, but without the connection they had once had. Steve didn't even shout, Avengers assemble anymore. It's a ridiculous thing to miss, but was also one more unwelcome sign of how much everything had changed. Once, she would have noticed Angie's inner turmoil without having to have it spelled out for her. Now she's been so fixated on her worry for Steve, Clint, and Carol that she hadn't noticed anything else. Especially Carol. What it did say about her priority is that she was capable of taking time in the midst of a war zone to worry about whether Carol still liked her. To moon over her long, soft hair and strong, perfectly sculpted legs to brood over her failure to help her so much that she was blinded by the problems of her other teammates. She had always been part of a team, whether it was her and Pedro, or the Brotherhood of Mutants, or the Avengers, or after their marriage, herself and Vision. She didn't like feeling like she wasn't really on one anymore. Was she just fixating on Carol because everyone else important to her was missing or busy? Did she really need to lean on someone else to belong to someone that much? If Carol was spying on the Argonians and Clint was running missions with Wanda, would she be fixating on him? If neither of them were there, would she be falling for Simon again? Or throwing herself at Steve? She hoped not. That would be uncomfortably like using Carol for her own selfish purposes. Wanda wrapped her arms around her knees and leaned back against the wall. She had just started to doze off, the exhaustion of a day spent using her power continuously finally catching up with her when she heard a loud, demanding voice from the foyer, the words muffled only slightly by the intervening walls. "'Where's my sister? I'll talk to you when I'm good and ready. I want to see her before I do anything else.' "'It wasn't Petro. It couldn't be Petro. He was outside the city, outside the force bubble. There was no way it could be him. "'How did you get here?' Steve's voice, the shock in it quickly turning to authoritative demand. "'Oh, please. I ran through after a convoy. It wasn't even a challenge.' Where is Wanda? He spoke slowly this time, spacing the words out with the special irritation Petro reserved for people who were being stupid and not moving quickly enough for him. Wanda was on her feet and running for the front room before she even realized it. Petro looked exactly the same, still in his familiar green, blue, and white uniform. Not a strand of his white hair out of place. Not hurt. Not dead. Here. Here. She'd been afraid to even think about people outside the force bubble being dead. Petro! He went stiff when she hugged him, for just a second. Petro didn't do hugs, then clutched her back tightly. You're all right, he gasped. The Falcon said you were, but that was weeks ago, and S.H.I.E.L.D. took forever to approve sending someone in, and it took a ridiculously long time to get Fury to see reason and realize that I was a much better choice than sending the Falcon back in. The entire sentence came out in one breath words running together. Pedro had broken himself of the habit of speaking too quickly for most people to understand when they were still teenagers. Wanda buried her face in his shoulder, her eyes suddenly hot, and hugged him all the harder, relief making her feel unsteady. You've spoken to Sam? Steve's voice actually cracked slightly on Sam's name, the relief in it raw and naked. He'd obviously been worrying about the Falcon as much as Wanda had about her brother, whether he'd admitted it to anyone or not. He's okay? Petro and Wanda both ignored him. Wanda, because she was looking Petro over for obvious injuries, and Petro, because other people's feelings had never been one of his strong points. Petro's hands curved around Wanda's shoulder, fingers unknowingly digging into the half healed plasma burn, and she flinched, instinctively pulling backwards. Petro frowned, grabbing the collar of her shirt and yanking it sideways to expose the bandages on her shoulder. What happened? he demanded. Wanda whacked his hand, then pulled her shirt back into place. I was grazed by a plasma bolt. Leave my shirt alone. Petro rounded on Steve, glaring. You let my sister get shot? I didn't. Steve started to protest. No one let me get shot, Wanda countered. Cap wasn't even there. You look even skinnier than usual, she added, because this was a game two could play. Is S.H.I.E.L.D. feeding you? And what are you doing with S.H.I.E.L.D.? I thought you'd gone back to him. It came out as more of an accusation than she'd meant it to, and Petra looked away. He's our father, he muttered. No, he's not, she snapped. He's a psychopath who's using you, again. No, he's not, Petra said quietly. He sounded odd, voice suddenly strained. He looked back up, meeting her eyes, and said levelly, Genosha is gone. The X-Men were able to rescue a few people, but the whole country is... There's nothing left. Nothing? There had been hundreds of people in Genosha. Thousands. If there had been any chance of Wanda managing not to hate the Argonians, learning this had done away with it. If it was true, then they had managed to kill more mutants than Project Wide Awake had ever dreamed of. Not because of fear or hate, but because human life truly meant nothing to them, and her brother had nearly been one of them. If Magneto was still alive... Pietro meant nothing to him, but the loss of that many mutant lives would make him the Argonian's bitterest enemy. "'He's with Xavier now,' Pietro said, answering the unspoken question. "'That must be interesting,' Steve said dryly. "'You have no idea.' Pietro's voice was equally dry, with an undercurrent of something Wanda really hoped didn't mean what she suspected it meant. "'When you say, with Xavier,' she started— don't make me talk about it, he interrupted one hand blurring up in a stop gesture. That's interesting, Steve repeated in a slightly choked tone. He was probably being affected by horrible mental images similar to the ones that Wanda would now never be able to erase from her brain. Any other casualties? he asked, shifting abruptly back into the business-like leader he was most of the time these days. Who else is still free? Most of the X-men, Pedro began. "'ticking points off his fingers. "'Shield took heavy losses, but they still have the helicarrier. "'Moscow was under human control again, "'but it cost at least half of what was left of the Russian army to do it. "'We have L.A. back, too, but they still have almost every other major city. "'We got lucky for a while. "'They started running out of usable aircraft, "'but now they've got someone fixing them. "'Yes,' Steve said. "'I told him to. "'We need the information he supplies too much to risk doing otherwise.' Pietro stared at him, one eyebrow raising skeptically. You haven't pulled Stark out yet? God knows what he's probably building for them. There was no way to get them out before, Wanda explained. They've been moved to a new facility now, a weapons manufacturing center. She offered him a smile. You're just in time to help us break them out. Pietro swore in three languages. Three languages.
4: He still couldn't get used to how small the room was. After four months in a gaping cavern the size of a football field, his new workspace felt cramped. The walls were too close, the ceiling too low, and the windows... the windows were distracting. The light that came through them, muted into a dim brown glow by the tinted glass, shifted and changed over the course of the day. Dimming and brightening again every time a cloud moved over the sun... He was fairly sure he'd been moved here as a reward for being such a good, loyal, helpful little scientist. His new supervisor, Anadwana, had told him that he had single-handedly done more to aid the Argonian occupation than any other human scientist, and that, when the first newly constructed aircraft was complete, he was going to be given an Argonian citizenship and made an honorary Argonian. Tony had never particularly liked himself, Other people might be impressed by his intelligence, or his looks, or the wealth and power he had. But he knew what he was really like under the facade he showed to them all. And so, he'd never been impressed by himself, especially not after Afghanistan. He had never really hated himself until now, though. He'd thought he'd hated himself, when he'd finally managed to get sober, after months spent trying to drink until the pain went away. But that had been mild dislike compared to now. He had the ability to wipe out the Argonian's power source and main defense in a single blow, and he'd been too much of a coward to take it. Had stalled and hesitated too long, because he didn't have the balls to make the kind of hard decisions Steve made every day. And now they had moved him, and he would never get that chance again. Every day that Earth spent under Argonian rule from the moment Tony had left the converter room, was his fault. The aircraft engine was virtually done. Any halfway competent mechanic could do the testing, and tuning he was performing on it now. So, without Izumud bringing him technical drawings to review, he didn't even have a challenge to distract himself with anymore. With great ceremony, Tony wrote down the parameters for the current test on the sheet of paper, then turned on the flow of power to the engine. When it engaged... He revved it up as high as it would go, listening for the sound of misfiring or stress. The design principles were completely different from any other engine he'd ever worked on, but it still functioned by means of combustion, so some things, like the risk of overstressed metal exploding in the field if he got it exactly right, were constant. It wasn't as hard as it had once been to pretend that recording data on the engine's tolerances and performance took effort everything took effort now, including eating or simply opening his eyes and getting out of bed. I'd ask if you were making sure that engine wasn't going to explode the first time it overheated, but I think we both know what you're doing. Tony flinched, his heart lurching in his chest as Schultz's smug, abrasive voice sounded in his ear. There's a very fine safety margin between maximum performance and catastrophic failure with this design. Tony said, deliberately not turning to look at him. It would figure that the one man among the other scientists who had the ability to ruin him with a single whispered word in an Argonian ear had been transferred along with him. I bet there is, Schultz said, with a mean little smirk that Tony could hear even without bothering to look. Look, we both know whose side you're on, Stark. What I need to know is, can we trust you? Tony did look, then. His heartbeat had started to calm down now that the original spike of adrenaline was fading. But the hollow, tense feeling of dread formed inside him once again. Trust me to do what? He glanced around automatically for the nearest guard and saw the rhino's massive grave bulk by the door and Clint leaning against the wall beside the window, his eyes fixed steadily on Schultz and Tony. Alexey and I are here on a contract, Schultz said. "'so quietly that the words would have been inaudible only a few feet away. "'On, too, before the radiation poisoning got him. "'I was originally supposed to take out the shield generator, power core, or both. "'But then On died. "'Then we lost our line of communication to Fisk, and they moved us. "'We have a new plan now.' "'Why are you telling me this?' "'Tony's voice sounded odd to his own ears.' Hearing someone other than Clint discuss resisting the Argonians was so strange it felt unreal. As if he were imagining the whole thing, or as if... any moment now. Schultz was going to step aside to reveal an aduana, or Mamitsu, standing there ready to arrest him for treason. Because, Schultz said, plan A has gone to hell. Plan B, which was to let you suicidally blow the power core up with your gauntlets so I wouldn't have to bring the wall down and the roof in with mine and die in the process. Has gone to hell, too. Clancy is breaking out of here. And to do that, we need you and Hawkeye in on things. Gauntlets. Tony found himself staring blankly at the man as he finally realized why Schultz's voice had seemed familiar. In retrospect, it was so painfully obvious that he wasn't sure how he had possibly missed it. You're the shocker, aren't you? The shocker, Schultz, blinked at him. Of course I— Wait, you didn't know? I didn't recognize you without the yellow quilt over your head. Schultz stared at him as if he'd only now realized that he'd been seriously overestimating Tony's intelligence. You regularly get beaten up by a skinny teenager, Tony pointed out defensively. Why would the Avengers need to know who you are? It's not a yellow quilt, Schultz snapped. It's a protective suit that serves as a vibrational dampener so the gauntlets don't rattle me apart. If your vibro-gauntlets were properly designed, that wouldn't be necessary. It was more a casual observation than anything else. And it wasn't until he saw Schultz's eyes narrow in increased irritation that Tony realized that it could be taken as an insult. Are you going to help us or not? Schultz asked through gritted teeth. Tony frowned, considering he and Clint could do no more good where they were, if they had been doing any in the first place. Now that they had lost contact with Jan, and depriving the Argonians of further cooperation was the least Tony could do at this point. Clint swore Steve and the others would be coming to rescue them soon, but if they could free themselves, the rest of the team wouldn't have to put themselves at risk. On the other hand, How far could they trust the shocker and the rhino? Are we really the only ones you could go to? He asked. What about the scorpion? Schultz snorted. Gargan? He's not undercover. Are you kidding? This is his dream come true. It's probably the first time anyone in his life's actually respected him, and he gets to bully people to his nasty little heart's content. He could be an Argonian plant. The whole thing could be a trick. But on the other hand, Schultz had known that Tony and Clint were spies for weeks without telling the guards, and it wasn't as if Tony actually stood to lose all that much. His and Clint's chances of successfully escaping on their own were slim to none. All Tony had been able to build himself was the armor's repulsor gauntlets, which meant that he had no jet boots and therefore no ability to fly away. He and Clint would have to blast their way out and escape on foot. "'The Argonians would have shot them down before they got a hundred yards. "'Tony hadn't been ready to take that chance. "'Not with Clint there. "'The odds on this one, at least, weren't any worse. "'I've built several small devices that will short-circuit the power for the entire building "'if I patch them into the wiring system,' he said, by way of answer. "'Schultz smirked. <laughs> "'Yeah, I figured you'd have something like that.' "'He leaned forward slightly.' "'one hand on the corner of Tony's lab bench, and added quietly. "'We're not so different, you and me, "'well, aside from you having a zillion dollars, "'and the part where I actually use my gauntlets myself. "'I built my first vibrational gauntlets out of scrap "'in the metal shop at Rikers, then I blasted my way out of there. "'I don't suppose you have any now?' "'Tony asked, deliberately not rising to the bait. "'He might not be a good man, or much of a hero these days,' But that didn't mean he had anything whatsoever in common with a petty thug. Are you kidding? Schultz snorted. Do you think Alexei and I would still be here if I did? I only had them half-finished when they moved us here. Alexei's got them now, if he hasn't broken them somehow. Tony had been forced to do the same thing with his nearly complete repulsor gauntlets. He had given them to Clint, who had smuggled them into the new building for him. Now, their disassembled pieces were hidden under a pile of engine parts on his workbench, waiting for him to put them together and hook them up to the reconfigured plasma gun energy pack that would replace the armor's power source. He and Schultz, it seemed, had the exact same last resort escape plan, and they apparently had the same plan regarding how to destroy the Argonian power core and shield device, too. Tony felt his face flush as he contemplated that. His strategic abilities were apparently on par with a petty thug-for-hire Spider-Man had sent to jail about two hundred times. They were supposed to be for destroying the alien's power core. But once I realized you were planning to take care of that for me... Schultz shrugged. We could have been gone a month ago, but I didn't have the vibro-gauntlets ready, and we couldn't think of a way to get Otto out. Tony raised his eyebrows and said, unable to help himself... No one suggested a very large hacksaw? Schultz's lips twitched, and he offered Tony the first smile he'd seen from the man that wasn't either mocking or an attempt to manipulate him. That was Connor's idea, but Otto said he'd kill us all in our sleep if we did. He paused for a second, smile fading a little, and added, And he would have, too. Octavius is a sociopath. Connor's idea? How many of you were in on this? He and Clint had spent months trying desperately not to let anything slip to the other scientists. He'd put Clint's life at risk in the name of secrecy after Mamito had poisoned him. The very idea that it might have all been for nothing, been unnecessary, was enough to make him feel sick. Schultz shrugged one shoulder. Pretty much everyone who'd ever worked a job for the kinkman. Your fellow legitimate scientists were the only real collaborators in there. Tony's ears were ringing. He shook his head, trying to chase the dizziness away. For nothing. All of this time, he'd been too afraid to speak to another human being, too nervous about whether the other prisoners were watching him to sleep. And it had all been for... How quickly can you get those gauntlets finished? He asked, forcing himself to focus. The other man thought for a moment. With the looser supervision in here? A week. Tony thought about that, nodded. "'I'll be ready whenever you are.' Schultz smirked, satisfied, as if this were the answer he'd been expecting. "'You'll have to get your precious i find the avengers hands dirty,' he warned. "'I used to build landmines,' Tony said flatly. "'And now I'm building and repairing weapons that are being used on my friends. I have more blood on my hands than most of your buddies from Rikers.' Schultz shrugged. "'Fine?' "'Then blasting our way out of here won't be a problem. "'We'll be ready in a week,' he repeated. "'Don't wuss out over collateral damage like you did on blowing up the converter room.' "'Then he left. "'Tony spent a long time staring after him, "'trying to come up with a rebuttal to that last statement, and failing. "'He had wussed out. "'Even two-bit supervillains had expected better of him than he'd delivered.' He had spent months undercover, endangering Clint and Jan along with him, and when the opportunity for which he would let himself be captured in the first place had come along, he had done nothing. Really, an escape attempt now was the least he could do. Even if he died in the process, at least the Argonians couldn't use him as a weapon against the rest of the human race anymore, and maybe Clint or some of the other scientists would be able to succeed in getting away. After all, staying here was condemning them all to a slow death by a scurvy. And Tony wasn't sure how much longer that would take, considering his bones ached all the time now, and his gums had started bleeding every time he brushed his teeth. There were bruises all over his body from accidentally knocking against things. He looked, and felt, like he'd gone three rounds with Titanium Man, or had another run-in with the Mandarin, or those hired assassins who'd nearly beaten him to death. God, was it really over four months ago now? If Tony, who was used to abuse and injury and in better physical shape than most scientists, felt this bad, then how bad must it be for his fellow captives, particularly the older ones like Dr. Gruenwald? The older man might be an irritating and self righteous academic who loathed him, but that didn't mean he deserved to suffer for Tony's failures. Tony engaged and revved up the engine again, listening as the overstressed machinery whined in protest. There was a slight vibration at higher cycle speeds that increased the stress on the valves. Correcting it would have been a simple task. Increasing it just enough to be dangerous, without being obvious, was slightly more difficult, but not by much. He was always so careful not to be obvious, not to be caught. Careful enough that after four months the Argonians wanted to give him the highest reward they could bestow upon a human, and he had barely done anything to aid the resistance at all. The more exhausted he became, the harder it was to remember why being careful was important. And worse, to remember that he wasn't really supposed to be working on the project they gave him. Not to the best of his ability, anyway. He could break down, repair, and reassemble an engine or a missile correctly while half asleep. Doing it incorrectly took more concentration and more energy, and some days now, he barely had the energy to get out of bed in the morning. Even given the motivating factor of the Argonians ready to prod him awake with a tail blade, if he spent more time trying to sleep than they felt he should. If he could actually get some decent sleep, maybe things would be a little clearer, a little easier. But between the nightmares and the constant tension that kept him awake even when his eyes burned, decent sleep was something he hadn't had in ages. It made him long for something to drink, Alcohol was the one thing he'd ever found that could make him relax enough to sleep, when his mind was running in circles, and the weight of his exhaustion and the knowledge of everything he had done was crushing him. It was also the one thing that would guarantee that he could sleep without nightmares, no matter what worries were plaguing him. Luckily, there was no alcohol here. And though destroying himself so that the Argonians could get no further use from him wouldn't be entirely a bad thing, suicide by Argonian security— be faster than suicide by bottle. Plus, an escape attempt might actually work and accomplish something. If nothing else, he reminded himself, Steve and the others wouldn't have to risk their own lives by coming in after them. He wished Steve were there. Or rather, that he were outside somewhere, and with Steve. So much that it hurt to even think of him. Steve had a way of making everything, if not okay. "'then at least less painful. "'Just the sound of his voice "'or the warm weight of his hand on Tony's shoulder, "'or the way his smile could... "'Tony forcibly cut off that line of thought "'and carefully nudged a heavy piece of scrap metal "'off his workbench, "'deliberately looking over and catching Clint's eye "'as he did so. "'The crash as it clattered onto the floor "'was shockingly loud in the otherwise quiet room. "'Clint was by Tony's workbench in an instant.' "'simultaneously berating him for his clumsiness "'and asking him if he was all right. "'You know how we were sure if we could pull off an escape attempt "'with just the two of us?' he asked quietly. "'As Clint picked up the fallen piece of scrap "'and returned it to its place on the workbench, "'Clint nodded, making the motion look like he was responding "'to a thank you or apology on Tony's part. "'How do you feel about enlisting some help "'and not waiting to be rescued?' Clint grinned at him for the first time in days.
7: It had been a long time since Jan had been on a team with Quicksilver. Though he was one of the Avengers' earlier members, he had never been a regular fixture of the team the way his sister had, not in recent years anyway. She had never before been on a team with Quicksilver and Spider-Man, which meant that She had never truly appreciated the absence of Pietro and Spider-Man continually bickering in the background until now, when she had the new perspective gained by listening to them for the past hour. The city loses money on it. Longer distances should be a higher expense. Yeah, well, maybe for those of us who learned everything we know about social policy from Ayn Rand, Spider-Man snarked. You don't even use the subway, Pietro protested, sneering at him. "'Neither do you,' Spider-Man pointed out. "'What difference does that make? "'And how do you know I don't use it when I'm out of costume?' "'No one is using the subway now,' Wanda interjected. "'Because the aliens have had control of it for the past five months. "'And they'll keep on controlling it even longer than that "'if we're all caught and executed,' Jan pointed out. "'She flew in a quick loop around Spider-Man's head "'to make sure she had his attention.' It was hard to tell sometimes with the way the mask covered his entire face, including his eyes, and then came to hover in front of the other three. "'The explosives need to go off three days from now,' she reminded them all. "'Are you sure you can do that?' This to Spider-Man. He cocked his head to one side and grinned through the mask. "'You're speaking to the city's new resident expert on explosives.' He flourished a tiny spider-shaped plastic device in one hand, all the superhero formerly known as Ant-Man has to do is talking this baby with his helmet and all the charges I've tagged with these will blow. It turns out two different devices that use electronic signals to mimic arthropod communication aren't as hard to synchronize as you'd think. Actually, I'd never really thought about that, Wanda murmured. Spider-Man handed a small bag full of what Jan had been assured were shaped charges set with remote-controlled detonators, regardless of the fact that they looked like so much junk, to Pietro. You go low, he said. I'll go high. The charges need to be put on. I know how to blow up a building, Pietro interrupted. Then he was gone, leaving a blue and white afterimage behind him. The charges, scattered around the outside of the building, would ideally lead the Argonians to think that they were the subject of a wide-scale assault when they were triggered. If it worked, the diversion ought to ensure that potential reinforcements were all too busy responding to the massive attack on Madison Square Garden to divert any troops to deal with the much smaller targeted attack on one police plaza. A real diversion would have worked better, of course, but Steve had shot that idea down immediately. They couldn't justify sending dozens of non-powered resistance members to their deaths solely to rescue two people, however important those people might be to them. He's not a people person, Spider-Man observed, is he? Then he set his hands and feet against the side of the building and began to climb upwards with impressive speed and agility. Hank was utterly fascinated by Spider-Man's wall-climbing ability, and watching it at work, Jan could see why. Mostly, she suspected that repeatedly attempting to convince Spider-Man to let him do blood tests and other minor experiments on him simply gave Hank something to do, but it was also nearly as efficient a mode of transportation as flying. Jan's job was to play lookout while Pietro and Spider-Man set the charges and Wanda worked her magic to shield them all from view. She flew in quick darting circles around the building, scrutinizing the Argonian guards for any hint of the disturbance that knowledge of their presence would cause. For the first few minutes, everything was fine. She was never able to figure out later exactly what went wrong. One moment, everything was peaceful, and the next, Argonian soldiers were pouring out of the building, plasma guns blazing. Jan shouted a warning, but Spider-Man was too far away to hear her, and God knew where Pietro was. Wanda turned toward her shout, her hands coming up, glowing with pink and red light. A stream of plasma fire shot toward her, hit the shield of power she had thrown up, and vanished. Jan dove toward Wanda, blasting the Argonians closing in on her with her stingers, but there were too many of them, and her blasts weren't powerful enough at long range to be more than an irritant. The Argonians had her effectively surrounded now. Jan was closing in, but too slowly, much too slowly, hindered by the need to dodge the plasma bolts the Argonians were shooting at her. She was still fifteen feet away when one of the Argonians lashed out at Wanda with its tail, the appendage catching her in the middle of the torso like a club. Wanda doubled over, her knees buckling, and grabbed for the tail with one still glowing hand— The Argonian's feet shot out from under it, as if the ground beneath it had suddenly turned twice, and it and Wanda both went down in a heap. A blue and white streak shot towards the melee, and then Pietro was shouting Wanda's name, trying to pull the Argonian off of her. There was a scream, and a hatefully familiar smell of burning, and then Pietro crumbled to the ground as well. Hey, you! Ugly! Let her go! Spider-Man shouted. He was climbing down the side of the building head first, like a lizard, his red and blue costume a bright, colorful target against the dull stone. For one long, horrible second Jan was frozen. They had Wanda and Pietro. There were too many of them for her and Spider-Man to take on on their own, especially given that Spider-Man had no long-range weapons other than webbing, which Argonian plasma guns could burn through with ease. They had to get Wanda and Pietro away from them somehow, had to. A plasma bolt shot directly at her, and she threw herself sideways, feeling a painful flare of heat along her entire body as it passed within an inch of her. She was at point-blank range now, close enough to make her stinger blasts count. Argonians had a higher pain tolerance than humans, but her stingers were still every bit as effective if she went for the eyes. She dodged a slash from an Argonian sword, ducked under a tail barb, and poured every bit of biochemical energy she could muster straight into a russet-furred face. The Argonian yowled in pain and flailed blindly at her, and Jan easily avoided her broad blows, diving low through a gauntlet of blades and tails and black-uniformed bodies until she was nearly on top of Pietro. There was a charred black streak along his right side, and he was half curled into a ball, clutching at it and groaning. Jan had a second to take in his closed eyes and pain-twisted face, and then a giant, furry hand grabbed her. She screamed, kicking and struggling and blasting the huge fingers with her stingers, and then, suddenly, it released her. She darted away, gasping for breath, and looked back over her shoulder to see the Argonian yanking futilely at the webbing that now covered its face. One of its hands looked burned. Good. She turned back to Pietro to find that two Argonians had picked him up and were running for the entrance to Madison Square Garden, with Pietro slung between them like so much dead weight. Wanda was nowhere to be seen. spider was on the ground now, trading punches with a pair of Argonians and about to be sliced in half by a third. Behind you, Jan shouted, and fired a stinger blast at it. They were going to be killed if they stayed there. At the very least, they'd be caught, and there would be no one left to go back and tell the others what had happened. Hank would never even know how she'd died. But they had Wanda and Pietro. Jan felt sick because you never left fellow Avengers behind in the hands of supervillains who wanted to kill them. But Pietro was being taken inside the building now, and Wanda was gone, probably already inside, and she couldn't see a way to get them back that wouldn't get both herself and Spider-Man killed or captured right along with them. Fall back, she yelled, swooping around an Argonian's reaching hand to hover by Spider-Man's ear. We need to get out of here. We can't just leave them, Spider-Man's voice cracked, and he sounded terribly young suddenly. They'll kill them. They'll kill us, too, if we don't retreat. A sword came scything at them, and Spider-Man, bent backwards at the waist in a way that a normal human being who wasn't Steve Rogers wouldn't have been capable of. He wasn't quite fast enough, and the tip of the blade sliced through the front of his costume, leaving a long diagonal tear and a thin red line beneath it. Retreat, Avenger! Jan yelled, and she could hear the echo of Steve's command voice on her tongue. That's an order. Spider-Man turned silently and shot a web line at the roof of a nearby building, swinging himself into the sky. Jan followed, blinking tears from her eyes as she flew. There was nothing they could have done, she told herself. Running had been the right thing to do. She wished she could make herself believe it.